As you well know, Toe dips its toes, so to speak, into philosophy, both publicly as well as I do so in my personal life. I encourage you to do the same with Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. Nearly 2,000 years after it was written, this guide to personal growth remains eminently relevant for anyone seeking to lead a meaningful life. Meditations isn't your average self-help book. In fact, it was the emperor's personal journal, and this makes it useful not only as a form of propositional knowledge, but to aid perspectival knowledge, something that John Verveke talks about as exigent, though missing in our culture. We sit in this improbable, even preposterous position of having the opportunity to peer into one of the deepest soul-searching, thoughtful, private questions, internal struggles that the once leader of the world thought about in his moments alone. Like, man, I would love to interview him if Marcus were a guest on tow. Maybe he would be a fan of the CTMU. Maybe he would be a Castrop sympathizer. I'll leave that up to you. Dive into the philosophies of Marcus Aurelius today with the book that Ryan Holiday said is the greatest book ever written. Meditations is available from Penguin Random House at prh.com slash meditations. This channel is about investigating theories of everything. Now that includes string theory, or M-theory, or some flavor of string theory, E8, geometric unity, even Wolfram's model, in fact I'm speaking with Wolfram in about a week. But also, broadly speaking, it encompasses Weltanschauungs, that is, a philosophical comprehensive theory of everything. Hence, the following two guests, Bernardo Kastrup and John Verveke. Bernardo Kastrup holds a PhD in computer science and philosophy, and is defending idealism, that is, the ontology that all that exists is the mental, in fact we're all part of one mind, which he calls mind at large. John Verveke, on the other hand, is an associate professor at the University of Toronto near me in cognitive science, advocating for naturalism. My name is Kurt Jaimungal, I'm a filmmaker and the host of this podcast with a background in math and physics. This is a theolocution, which is, rather than critiquing and sparring, it's about constructing and building and understanding the other's position consonant with love, hopefully. Round one is linked below in the description, and it's imperative that you watch that first, or at least look at the timestamps and skip around a few times in order to gain a bird's eye view of their respective philosophies and where they agree slash disagree. Today I welcome the podcast's first sponsors. Algo is an end-to-end supply chain optimization software company with software that helps business users optimize sales and operations, planning to avoid stockouts, reduce returns and inventory write-downs while reducing inventory investment. It's a supply chain AI that drives smart ROI. The second sponsor is Brilliant. Brilliant illuminates the soul of math, science, and engineering through bite-sized interactive learning experiences. Brilliant's courses explore the laws that shape our world, elevating math and science from something to be feared to a delightful experience of guided discovery. More on them later. If you'd like to see more conversations like this, then please consider supporting at patreon.com slash Mungle. I've also opened up crypto donations. We have PayPal as well. The plan is to have more conversations like this, both theolocutions and then the regular podcasts. For example, I have Yosha Bach and Donald Hoffman coming up in a few weeks. There are also a few others planned that I can't announce just yet. They're huge names. I'm working with them. And if you'd like to support to see the conversations, then please do consider becoming a patron. Every single dollar helps. Thank you. Thank you so much and enjoy the podcast. Welcome, John. Welcome, Bernardo. Great pleasure to be here. Great pleasure to be here. Great to see you again, Bernardo. My pleasure, John.
Okay, so let's start. Firstly, with a recapitulation of last time. That is, let's see if, John, if you can state what Bernardo, what you think Bernardo says in a way that's consonant with what he meant, and then vice versa. Yeah. Maybe one to five minutes. We'll start with you, John. Sure, I'll, I'll do my very best, and I, I, I will reserve any kind of critical response to, to later. I just want to make sure that I am understanding. First of all, I want to comment on the fact that um, I thought Bernardo's presentation of his ideas was excellent um, and uh, 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 very clear. Um, so the main, I mean, there were many theses put forward by Bernardo, but I think the central one that it seems to me everything's hanging on is, is his claim for, uh, you know, what's in the technical lingo is called absolute idealism, uh, a, 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 a strict form of monism. Um, in which ultimately all of reality is some modification uh, or state within a unified consciousness, uh, unified at least at the substantial level. Um, and then Bernardo uh, wants to deal with one of the crucial problems facing that, which is, well, where does all this phenomenology, because we're in the realm of consciousness, about an external world and material objects that seem to exist independent of our consciousness uh, come from? Uh, Bernardo made it very clear that he's not a solipsist, and he's in that sense not uh, what you might call an individual Berkeleyan idealist. Objects exist when we're not looking at them, and the deep past isn't a problem for him uh, because the 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 consciousness within which reality is to be found, if that's the right way of putting it, is uh, what he sometimes calls cosmic mind or mind at large, which is a consciousness. Um, so the main argument he makes, and I don't want to say that's the exclusive argument, he made many arguments and they're all connected, but the central argument is an argument in terms of parsimony. Um, so he argues that the main problem facing a naturalistic um, account. Uh, and I think, just one small thing, I try to make clear that I think the, 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 the real competitor with his view is, is a kind of naturalism. Um, um, that a naturalism has difficulty explaining uh, the emergence and also the interact, the emergence of something like consciousness understood as subjective qualitative experience, qualia, um, and how that qualia could possibly causally interact with the material domain. Um, so those are two perennial problems. And he argues that parsimony says the way to avoid those is just to posit that there's one underlying unified substance. Uh, then he faces, as I said, the difficulty of explaining how uh, we get externality and materiality. And the way he uh, explains that is... Uh, that there is a dissociation process, some way, somewhat analogous to the empirical evidence we have for dissociations, uh, dissociative states within the consciousness of human beings, um, and that something analogous to that is going on in cosmic mind, and that psychological, I think that's the right adjective, dissociation um, helps to explain um, the, the phenomenological externality and the phenomenological materiality. Um, I think that's the best I can do right now uh, within it's one to five good. minutes. <laughs> Bernardo. Um, I think John's main message is not necessarily uh, metaphysics dependent. I think uh, the import of what he has to say 
would still be there, whatever metaphysics turns out to be true, whatever that, wherever that argument uh, goes. His main message, uh, as far as I understand, which is of course filtered by my own interests, has to do uh, with uh, meaning. Um, I think we in the West today are in a very peculiar historical situation, and John points that out very well, uh, in which we've lost our sources of meaning. We've lost contact uh, with the, yeah, the fundamental driver of life, the will to meaning, as opposed to Nietzsche's will to power or Freud's will mm. to pleasure. Mm. Um, uh, in that sense, John is in the line that in the 20th century maybe was most visibly uh, defended by Viktor Frankl, mm -hmm. uh, that, that idea of the search for meaning. Um, metaphysically, uh, uh, John is not prepared to give up on some reality behind the concept of matter, but he is not an extreme reductionist in the mm -hmm. sense that uh, he is not saying that consciousness can be completely accounted for purely by quantitative physical parameters. He appeals to some forms uh, of emergence, perhaps even to what uh, Chalmers would call uh, some form of strong emergence, which basically means that uh, the emergent phenomenon cannot be directly deduced from complete knowledge of the underlying uh, dynamics. In other words, something real uh, with the reality of its own uh, um, arises from or in a way related to brain processing. And that's something that has reality, is our conscious lives. Uh, and if I understood him, if I correctly recall what he said, he's even open to some forms of downward causation. He's, mm -hmm. he's open to some forms of the gestalt of our conscious experience impinging downwards uh, into brain processes. And of mm -hmm. course, there is some, some degree of empirical evidence uh, for that. Uh, it's difficult for me now to proceed and point out uh, in a critical way uh, points where I disagree with John's main message because, well, <laughs> I largely don't. Um, I think uh, the point where we don't see eye to eye is on the details of the metaphysics. I don't think, however, that that, that is really relevant for the importance of what he has to say. Um, but I do think, and, I, and now I'm trying to do my best to be critical about something, um, I think that um, if we appeal to things that are unknown, such as some form of strong emergence, I think the burden is on the one who appeals to it to, to try to close that somehow, to try to make sense of that somehow. Uh, uh, and. I think that even has some degree of psychological bearing. I mean, we, we did talk briefly about it last time. Uh, I posed the question, you know, for people to really find meaning in their lives, would they be satisfied with the notion that they make their own meaning? Or do they really, to, do they really have to have at least the belief that there is inherent meaning out there, that we are not making stuff up to sort of deceive ourselves. And that's the point where I think uh, uh, John's message could benefit from a more explicit, well-defined uh, metaphysical position. I think it would strengthen his main message, his, his, the, the, the role, the main role he's playing in the culture right now. That, that was excellent. That was very fair. Very fair. Let's be recollective for a second. 
As for the last conversation, I'm curious how you all think it went and what point or points said by the other person nettles you ever since and made you may perhaps even rethink a position of yours. Maybe not a, a, a vital pillar, but gives you pause at least. So, John, you first, please. Well, first of all, the overall tenor, again, um, uh, I think Bernardo succeeded in, I think, one of, uh, I, I, there's, there's goals that are, are preliminary to the goals of, of conviction of truth, but they're necessary goals. I think Bernardo succeeded admirably in, uh, and I, I think this is important, by the way, this is not meant to be dismissive. I think he succeeded admirably in making his position intellectually respectable. Um, Bernardo knows as well as I do that there are many, many versions of absolute idealism out there that are absolutely drecky and horrible and woo-woo and they're equivalent to postulating that leprechauns cause things. Um, and, and it became very clear to me, um, you know, because this is the first time I really seriously interacted with Bernardo, that that is not what is happening with him. And he made his position intellectually respectable. And he did it in a responsive um, and congenial manner. Um, and... Um, I, I greatly enjoyed the dialogue. Um, a couple, I mean, I have been thinking about it. I, I go for walks in the morning, and often I'm talking to Bernardo in my head uh, when I'm on the walk, which is not an unpleasant thing as well. Um, and, and a couple of things for me uh, came up. Well, one was um, uh, Matt Segal uh, uh, t- put out a commentary. I, I texted you the link, uh, Kurt, uh, about the discussion. And then I had a uh, like a three-hour discussion with him yesterday or two and a half hours about Whitehead um, and his version of pan-experientialism and the notion of prehension. Um, And I I found that I was coming a lot closer to that view. And then upon reflection, I thought, well, when Bernardo's talking about consciousness, um, he, he said it's at this instinctive level. It doesn't have intentionality. It doesn't have reflective rationality, reflective self-awareness. I felt that the distance bet- that between us was growing smaller in, in the positions I was willing uh, to consider and take seriously. Because I, ha- I, I do, I did, I did mention last time that I take Whitehead's proposal very seriously. I think Whitehead was a significant, one of the most significant philosophers who was contemporary with the scientific revolution of the early 20th century. And I think he's an important uh, response to that. And so that happened for me. Um, the thing that nettles me, I don't know if nettles me is the, the same. Um, and this goes towards perhaps my, my, my larger metaphysical view, which I briefly talked about last time as being sort of a naturalistic Neoplatonism. Um, uh, so I've been deeply influenced by the Neoplatonic ideas. Um, so in Plato, it's pretty much an emanation uh, metaphysics with participation. And then Plotinus, you have a, a two-way movement. There's emanation and then there's return. Uh, and that's because the Neoplatonists realized that there were sort of two problems that needed to be explained. How does the one become many and how does the many become one? Um, but Plotinus still gives emphasis. By the time you get to Erangina, it's completely dialectical. They're completely equally symmetrical. And I remember a really good book writ- written by Katz quite a while ago called The Metaphysics of Meaning, uh, where he basically said that the naturalist faces the problem of getting up to unity and uh, explaining how normative normativity uh, emerges. And then he said that the, the Platonist has the problem of how do we get the diversity and how do we get down into causation. So it's basically uh, how do causes become reasons and how do reasons become causes. Um, 
and I tend to see uh, Bernardo, uh, I, I, he won't agree with this, but I do think it's uh, movement towards uh, uh, our positions being closer. I do see, uh, I think, uh, I, I see what I would, and what Katz has claimed. I think there's a symmetry issue. I acknowledge that, and I don't mean to uh, imply that Bernardo isn't, in, 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 isn't acknowledging things. I'm just saying something straight out. Um, that the problem of emergence is a real problem um, and that all we have are weak analogies that fail fundamentally at the point where we need them to work. Um, I see it, and again, I foresee that Bernardo won't agree, but I see it that the problem of dissociation is an equally mysterious problem. All, all he has for it is a weak analogy, the analogy to psychological dissociation, and it, does, it, it fails at precisely the point where we need it to work. All the empirical cases of psychological dissociation don't produce material objects, don't do produce independent uh, external existence, etc. So the, that, that dissociation doesn't actually supply the metaphysical move he makes. I see that symmetrical to the way emergence is, relies on weak analogies. Uh, so if he'll allow me just at least a, a parallel in uh, terminology, um, I, I think he needs something like strong dissociation uh, to produce the real differences. Um, that we experience phenomenologically, because uh, they're at least phenomenologically real. He never denies that. He's not a solipsist. Um, so um, I see them as symmetrical. <clears throat> and where that leads to me more, more generally is, like I said, I, I think my metaphysics is very much about the idea that um, there's a deep interpenetration of emergence and emanation. Um, that's why I'm attracted to Whitehead. Um, and for me, that's consonant with the, uh, the, the increasing number of non-dualities we are discovering about reality, uh, matter and energy, uh, time and space, uh, uh, you know, and, and waves and particles, um, etc. And so my metaphysics is in that sense um, more of a, a neoplatonic position. Now, what many people on the other side of the fence... Uh, sort of the people who are much more perhaps scientific rather than scientific. But, oh, but Neoplatonism is so anti-scientific. I argue explicitly against that. We have very good historical argumentation that uh, uh, Neoplatonism has been and continues to be a significant birthplace for scientific ideas. It's, it, it comes to the fore during scientific revolutions. Um, John Spencer's book on the influence of Neoplatonism in, in the scientific revolution of the 20th century I think is very good. Uh, the recent work by Berman on Platonism and the objects of science saying that science presupposes intelligibility and then presupposes um, something like, you know, platonic forms in order to do what it does as science. I think that's a beautifully written and well-argued book. And if you look at it, so for me, um, my starting plate, uh, place is a little bit different from Bernardo's. Um, and in that sense... Um, Perhaps uh, it might be helpful if I just briefly said what it was. Um, they're not disconnected from each other, but I don't think they're identical. So I start from intelligibility. Uh, so this is much more like ancient philosophy rather than sort of a Cartesian approach, which is what, what, uh, what has to be presupposed in your ontology in order for knowledge to exist. So you take it as a fundamental presupposition that you reject absolute skepticism, absolute solipsism. And then, what does, and then the idea is, well, the universe has to be comprehensible. It has to be intelligible. Um, and then what the Neoplatonist notes is there's this weird relations within intelligibility. You need information in order to have knowledge. Information causes knowledge. 
but knowledge can't be reductively explained in terms of information. And you need knowledge for wisdom. Knowledge causes wisdom, but you can't reductively explain knowledge in terms of wisdom. And so uh, Neoplatonism has seen within intelligibility this causal emergence upward and the normative constraining downward. And it, it tries to unfold a metaphysics that I think best grounds our experience of intelligibility that is presupposed by our science. And I, I want, and I think this is sincere, I, I, I want to see if this is ultimately reconcilable with that, uh, that at least smaller gap between Bernardo and I, between sort of the right headian idea of prehension, because he tries to lay that in as the ground both of causation and of intelligibility, and what Bernardo is saying. So maybe there, maybe there's something there. I don't know, and I'm happy to explore it. So that's my sort of summation and initial response. Bernardo, what did John say in the previous round, or even now, that, yeah. <laughs> like I said, either gives you pause or upends one of your pillars, or at least shakes it and has been corrupting you since? <laughs> Only on the negative side, because your original question was both the positive side and the negative side. I want to talk about the positive first, if it's okay. <laughs> um, it, it's difficult to say that it's because of our last discussion, because I already knew John's material, so I already sort of have my favorite thing amongst the many things he says, and, uh, and he said it again in our last debate. So that's the thing that is always with me, and I think that's one of the most critical things in our culture today, which is to have a correct understanding of what wisdom means. Yeah. Uh, I think we, we fumbled that idea so badly uh, in the West that we've lost our guides. Uh, we, we just do not know who to look up to for orientation. And uh, I, I, I like to call it uh, the idolatry of nerds. And the, the, the word nerd is appropriate because it means that somebody has chosen one amongst many psychic skills to center his entire life and ignore all our other psychic functions and organs, all the other things mm. that are key constituents of, of wisdom. And we take our, our cue now from, from nerds uh, uh, who have an axe to grind, uh, as opposed to true wisdom. So, and, and John takes this seriously. He just doesn't say, well, our definition of wisdom is wrong. This is the right definition. No, he makes it a study area. He invites you to explore that question. He doesn't whitewash it. He doesn't make it look simple. Uh, uh, he gives it the depth that it fundamentally has. Uh, and, and it doesn't give you a ready answer, uh, but uh, he shows us the way to sort of revise our exploration of that question. I think this is pretty central. Um, I don't want to get across as too exaggerated, but, but it's honest what, I, what, what I'm about to say. I think it's central to whether we will make it as a civilization or not. Mm -hmm. It's central to whether we will survive. Look, the planet will survive if we screw up badly, give it a million years, and the planet's a garden again, just without us. <laughs> not even without us, uh, because the Australian Aboriginals, the Inuits, the, the, the Bushmen in Africa, they have the skills to survive that. And the question is whether our culture, our way of life, our accumulated knowledge, our civilization will survive. And I think uh, uh, that question rests to a large degree on a, a better understanding of wisdom and a better choice about who we take our directions uh, from. Um, so that, I think, is pretty central. 
Now, the thing that uh, made me upset, nothing made me upset, really. Um, so uh, I'll rather choose one of the things that John said now. I'll take this as an opportunity to, to try to weave uh, a defense. It's normal, by the way, that I am on the defense because I make my of my work a metaphysics question. John doesn't. Uh, so if the disagreement is on a metaphysics question, of course I am the one who will be on the defense because I am the one who is trying to make an explicit case. John's case doesn't rest on metaphysics, so he doesn't need to be as explicit. So in a sense, it's natural that I have a much bigger target painted on my forehead uh, <laughs> than he has. It's by construction. So uh, he said now that he, he sees that uh, there is some symmetry between the analogy of dissociation uh, doing what it needs to do to serve the purpose I want it to serve and an appeal to, to emergence. I, I, I will take the liberty to disagree. I don't think the symmetry is there, uh, but I recognize the point because I have heard this made many times before. And, and it, if the point is made very explicit, it goes something like this. If I am a dissociated altar of universal consciousness and you too, I happen to be here looking at you. I can shake your hand, I can talk to you, I see you around, but the alters of a person with dissociative identity disorder don't see each other. They don't shake hands, they are not inhabiting a common environment. So the analogy doesn't work all the way, it doesn't do what I wanted to do. Um, I think that's not true because we are taking the analogy at the wrong level. Um, Remember, uh, we as alters of universal consciousness, we are in a shared mental environment by, by my hypothesis. And if you take my hypothesis to be true for the sake of argument, mm -hmm. uh, we share a mental environment. Uh, uh, and so we see each other within that mental environment. You cannot compare that to the alters in the mind of a person. You cannot expect those alters to see each other in the external world because there is no external world from the point of view of a universal mind. Everything is within that mind. So if you want to, uh, uh, to make a comparison correctly, you have to look at the world within the mind of a person with DID and not expect that the alters we see each other in the external world. So the correct analogy is to look at the dreams of a person with DID and compare that to this, a dream of a universe that undergoes dissociation, because in both cases, then it's within that uh, mental context. Then it's a correct comparison. So let's look at the dreams with people with uh, DID. It turns out research from Harvard indicates that 25%, one quarter of people with uh, DID, they have dreams in which multiple alters partake in the mm -hmm. same dream, mm -hmm. and they see each other in the dream, they hear each other in the dream, they interact with each other in the dream. How do they know that? Because when the person recalls the dream, afterwards, each alter recalls the dream from a different point of view, and they identify the other alters as characters in the dream. So if that's the correct comparison, I would say, well, 25% is a very statistically significant uh, uh, number. Um, I would say it, it the analogy does what it's supposed to do if you look at it at the correct level for comparison. Um, now, it, I will acknowledge that we don't have a full and explicit conceptual account of dissociation. Uh, it has to do with inferential isolation. It has to do with pathways to, to memory access. We know that we, kn we have pieces of the puzzle, but we don't have a 
complete puzzle assembled that tells us this is the conceptual account of what dissociation is and how it happens. Well, mainly how it happens, we know what it is. Uh, but I would say, well, that is secondary, it takes a second seat to, to the fact that it empirically happens, and, and now there is no question about it from neuroimaging that it does happen. There is something dissociation looks like, and it can make you blind, uh, literally. Uh, so, the fact that we don't have a conceptual account for it is not a detriment to, to one's ability to use dissociation uh, in, in an explanatory framework, because whether we conceptually understand it or not, it happens. It's all there in, na in nature. Now, you can't say the same thing about um, strong emergence, because uh, how, how do you have an empirical account of strong emergence that is independent of your theoretical assumptions? It, that's not possible. Because uh, you, all you can say, well, this phenomenon exists, but to say that it, that it is an empirical instance of strong emergence, uh, you have to say that, that there is something there that is physically real and which fundamentally cannot be accounted for in terms of its constituent parts. Now, that's impossible today and probably forever, because, you know, the fastest computers we have, if they were to run simulations of nature on the basis of uh, first principles, the, the, the laws and the standard model of particle physics, you could simulate maybe a hundred particles, a thousand would already be, you know, on the edge. You can't simulate a protein molecule, a complex one. Uh, starting from first principles, from the laws of quantum mechanics and the standard model, because it's an explosion of complexity. So it is impossible to, to appeal to an empirical fact about strong emergence, but it is entirely possible to do that for, for dissociation. Uh, so that's how I would wrap up uh, my defense. Uh, John, what do you think? Make sure from now on, we don't say he, we don't say... John, you say you because you're speaking to Bernardo and Bernardo. Okay, okay. I am in the background. I am just an observer. Well, I did say Bernardo most of the time I was talking last time. So I'll try to, I'll try to say you and Bernardo. Um, so the, and I think you could strengthen your case by the work that's also been done on lucid dreaming. Um, so I take, I mean, this sounds, and maybe that's relevant to the discussion we're going to have later about religion. This sounds very similar uh, to sort of Vedanta ideas about Brahman and Brahman dreaming and in the dream, that's what how the world... I mean, so the, the dream mechanism is ultimately the, the main mechanism uh, by which the ontology unfolds. Um, and, and, and the problem that, again, arises for me is uh, most of the empirical accounts of dreaming presuppose a distinction between conscious and unconscious processing to explain the phenomenology of the dream. So uh, that, you know, I have a certain amount of consciousness, but I'm not aware of all the unconscious processes that are then generating the alternatives. And it seems to me then, if you're going to invoke dreaming, you're going to invoke the ontology that we currently use empirically to explain it, which posits a very strong distinction between conscious processes and unconscious processes. Like to, in order to explain what dream, why dreams have the content they do and why they have the features they do, etc. Like, why is this coming up? Well, because there's an unconscious process that's doing memory compression. It's removing parasitic programs. And that's why these figures come up, etc., etc. Um, and so I think to invoke uh, dreaming is you know, perhaps problematic because it ultimately invokes the existence of an unconscious 
uh, which I ultimately, I, I, I don't think you can posit it for, you know, consciousness at large. There can't be an unconsciousness for unconscious, for consciousness at large, uh, because then you do have, uh, at the substantial level of your fundamental metaphysics, you have a dualism, and I know you reject ultimately uh, such dualism. So that would be the issue I would have there about that, we, if that makes any sense. It, it does, it does. We touched on it uh, uh, yeah. last time, um, and I appealed to the difference between this uh, uh, phenomenally conscious and phenomenally unconscious divide. And my point was, well, it's all phenomenally conscious, but there is still a divide. There is a divide between uh, the two sides of a dissociative boundary, and there is a divide between uh, um, uh, metacognitive consciousness and non-metacognitive consciousness. Processes mm. that are conscious, you are experiencing, but you don't know that you are experiencing them, so you can't even report them to yourself. Things like uh, blindsight, for instance, that seem to be going uh, in that direction. So uh, I, I'm, I, I just wrote a, bon a, a book about Jung's metaphysics. So this stuff is still very uh, <laughs> fresh uh, uh, in my mind. Um, I, I don't have a problem with um, the idea of an unconscious as defined uh, implicitly or explicitly by Jung, Freud and Jenny. Uh, because I think uh, they are very clear repeatedly uh, about it throughout their corpus, corpuses that um, what they are alluding to uh, uh, as the unconscious is psychic but non-metacognitive. Jung goes beyond. Jung, Jung adds even more stuff to make the definition even more specific. He says it has to be connected in a web of associative meanings, uh, uh, so you have to place it into a context for it to be conscious. Uh, but the general idea is that uh, they are not saying that the unconscious is non-phenomenal. They are just adding higher level mental functions to what is psychic, which is phenomenal, I think, uh, uh, to differentiate what consciousness means. Um, and even dissociation, I think, could be appealed to to account for the, quote, unconscious, in the sense that our ego is largely dissociated from the, the totality of our being. I mean, most of us, we identify with, the ad with our adaptive selves, mm -hmm. not with our natural selves. Um, that, that natural self we were when we were five years old, and by the time we are seven, it begins to slip away. By the time you go to, to college, it's gone. And... Um, and then it's a struggle later in life to sort of reconnect with, with your natural self. So I think that speaks volumes. I mean, there's a lot of clinical evidence about this. And I think that speaks volumes to the idea that not only are we not metacognitive of the vast majority of our phenomenal uh, contents, our experiences, uh, but even the part of us that we identify with, that subset of phenomenal consciousness that we identify with, seems to be, in the context of our culture, very, very largely dissociated, whatever dissociation com com uh, conceptually is, seems to be very largely dissociated from the totality of, of what we are. Well, that's a good answer. Um, but I, I, I guess the, the reply, and I don't know how, how much more we can go on this, it's the truth, because this this is a well, maybe going in this direction is also very uh, on its own an interesting thing. Um, so you know, Searle made this uh, a similar argument, uh, and, and then he argued that uh, the unconscious ultimately has to be accessible uh, to consciousness. Uh, and he did that in terms of 
you know, anything that's cognitive is representational. Representations are aspectual. Aspectual is de dependent on a point of view. And uh, ergo, uh, he said he was willing to countenance something like a Jungian. He, he said Freudian, but it's, that, that doesn't matter, I think, for, for the point he's making. Unconscious. And, and he, he would therefore say, yeah, that even the so-called uh, unconscious processes, insofar as they become genuinely cognitive processes, have to at least be accessible to phenomenal uh, consciousness. That's his argument. Um, now, the debate that swirled around that was he seemed to be denying what people have sort of called the Chomskyan unconscious, uh, which is an unconscious that is never accessible to us. Uh, for example, the processing that's happening right now for you, whereby the sounds coming out of my face hole are becoming ideas in your mind. You have no introspective and there's nothing, I can put you through psychoanalysis for 30 years and you'll never access that. And so, I mean, it seems plausible to, uh, to, to conclude that that's, uh, you know, the cognitive unconscious uh, doesn't need to have access to phenomenal um, experience in order to operate and process. And that's sort of the general view uh, within a lot of cognitive psychology that we, we, in fact, most of our explanations of human behavior require that Chomskyan unconscious. Why can you only hold four chunks in working memory? You don't have any introspective access to that limitation. It's functional. You deeply depend on it, but you can't bring that into, you can't stand back and go, oh, that, now I'm experiencing <laughs> why working memory is constrained. Um, and, and so... I guess, since we're in here, what do you think of the proposal of, if you'll allow me to call it as, we'll call it what Jung and Freud did, just for purposes of distinction, the psychodynamic unconscious, and what I'm talking about as the cognitive unconscious, and what I was proposing, the connection was that I think a lot of dreaming, I'm not denying there isn't a psychodynamic con unconscious for dreams. That would be ridiculous. I'm not claiming that at all. What I'm claiming, though, is that there's also the cognitive unconscious for dreams, and that seems to... Uh, be something that's operating without ever needing to have access to phenomenal uh, phenomenal experience. Yeah, I think, look, I think uh, what we call consciousness, which is better called meta-consciousness, and this is metacognitive yeah. meta awareness, which entails not only representation, but internal re-representation uh, uh, of mental, cont mental contents. Uh, uh, it, it's evolutionarily speaking, a recent acquisition, yeah. right? It came hand in hand with symbolic yeah. thinking and language. Yeah. So we are talking, what, 30, 50,000 years? I mean, to say that it's the blink of an eye in the three and a half billion years of the existence of life on this planet is, 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 is a major exaggeration. Uh, it's much less than the blink of an eye. It, 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 it popped up yesterday. Now, why should it be comprehensive enough to encompass everything about the psyche. Uh, why would evolution favor that? Evolution will favor re-representation of things that would give us a survival advantage to ponder about. Uh, but processes that uh, need to have very quick reaction time or which never need to be re-represented in order to be effective, why would we develop the ability to re-represent those? Why should the scope of metaconsciousness be all-encompassing? There's no reason for that. Um, uh, for, for Freud, I think the idea of a, a cognitive unconscious is much more palatable because for Freud, the unconscious what it is made of former contents of consciousness. So it is consciousness that is the mother of the unconscious. The unconscious is just repressed, forgotten, 
former contents of consciousness. So it's it, it, it's much more friendly to this to this idea that for something to be psychic, uh, it, it it has to be at least in principle in principle cognitively accessible. But for Jung, it's totally different because for Jung, consciousness is a growth out of the unconscious. The unconscious is creative. It's the matrix uh, of being. And I would I would think that Jung's position is more consistent with what we now know about the phylogenetics of the human psyche, how uh, we came from uh, a, a anatomical, anatomically, anatomically human uh, creature uh, 200,000 years ago, uh, devoid of the ability to think symbolically, which symbolically, which of course preempts metacognition, because what is a re-representation but an internal symbol? Uh, uh, and, and only thirty or fifty thousand years ago, we've developed this ability to explicitly introspect into the contents of our of our psyche. I think that's more in line uh, with the Jungian hypothesis that the unconscious is the matrix. And if that's the case, then I would say we have absolutely no reason to, to demand from evolution an all-encompassing consciousness in the sense that the depth psychologists defined it. In other words, metaconsciousness. Why should metaconsciousness be all-encompassing? There seems to be no evolutionary advantage for that. On the contrary, even a disadvantage because pondering entails delay. And, and some reactions need to be immediate uh, and quick. Uh, so I, 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 uh, I, I appreciate that answer. Um, uh, I wasn't trying to give an ontological priority or a causal history. I was trying to say that our own consciousness in the argument about consciousness has an epistemological priority. Um, and, and it seems to me that you're saying that our metacognitive, our introspective aspect of consciousness is actually fundamentally, ontologically inaccurate. It doesn't grasp it as it truly is. And then my problem is, it's sort of a Kantian argument, then the consciousness you're talking about is kind of a thing in itself for which I don't have any experiential evidence. And again, it seems to me that then epistemologically, we're back to a symmetrical argument uh, again. I think you could say that um, whatever is metaconscious is per force phenomenally conscious. In other words, it entails qualities, it entails experience, experience some experiencing of some form. Um, so the jump from what is metacognitively conscious to what is only phenomenally conscious, but not metacognitively so, is, a, is an extrapolation in degree, but not in kind. Because it, it is still phenomenal, it's still phenomenal conscious of the same kind that you can become explicitly aware of when you introspect. And in addition to that, there are things that, I mean, most people I think who, who pay attention to introspection have had that experience. You may become only later in life explicitly or metacognitively aware of something that retroactively you know you were experiencing all along. You just didn't know that you were experiencing those. So uh, I, I don't deny that. I don't deny that we can retrospectively uh, have metacognitive access. Uh, but it seems to me that the way, the, I mean, the phenomenality, the phenomenality of my consciousness is of a here and now localized consciousness. Right. The, the idea that is consciousness at large is not phenomenologically accessible to me. Right. And, and so uh, 
I was trying to point out that my only instance, my only, oh, sorry, I want to say this very correct, not my only theoretical, my only phenomenal uh, instance of consciousness is my own. I agree with you that that doesn't license solipsism, uh, but uh, that seems to indicate to me that you are like positing uh, a, a kind of consciousness for which I have no phenomenological evidence. And that's why in the discussion I wanted to say, well, it, I don't have phenomenological introspective evidence for it, right? Which, and you're nodding, so thank you. Um, and so I need some independent argument from it at large that doesn't just presuppose consciousness at large in order to make that move. But you always need to extrapolate somehow, unless you're a solipsist. Yeah. Um, then you say, all that, all that exists is my personal experience and everything else is a story I'm making up. Yeah, I so agree you always with you need on to that. extrapolate. We, we agree on that. We agree on that. So take that as a given. I, like I said, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I, at that level, I'm a Neoplatonist. And, you know, the intelligibility of the, of the well, you know, we, we, at least whatever, we both call it the external world. We have different reference for it. But I, I take that for granted. And I take that as something that uh, I take, a, I'm a realist about reason um, in, in that sense. Hear that sound? That's the sweet sound of success with Shopify. Shopify is the all-encompassing commerce platform that's with you from the first flicker of an idea to the moment you realize you're running a global enterprise. Whether it's handcrafted jewelry or high-tech gadgets, Shopify supports you at every point of sale, both online and in person. They streamline the process with the internet's best converting checkout, making it 36% more effective than other leading platforms. There's also something called Shopify Magic, your AI-powered assistant that's like an all-star team member working tirelessly behind the scenes. What I find fascinating about Shopify is how it scales with your ambition. No matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Join the ranks of businesses in 175 countries that have made Shopify the backbone of their commerce. Shopify, by the way, powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, including huge names like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. If you ever need help, their award-winning support is like having a mentor that's just a click away. Now, are you ready to start your own success story? Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theories, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theories now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in, shopify.com slash theories. Can you not get to mind at large via experience from psychedelics or a deep meditative state? Bernardo? If I follow John's argument line, you could say, well, in a sense, yes, but then that already becomes your personal experience. Uh, so, so to say that that's not your personal experience becomes a theoretical move based on what you identify yourself with, what you believe is information you could ha have access to as a person. So you, you can make that inference. Uh, but it's immediately a theoretical inference, which doesn't mean that it's invalid. No, I think not it's at all. valid. Yeah. Not at all. Uh, but uh, in John's argument line, uh, he can maintain his argument despite this, because he can say, well, yes, you can make that inference, but that, that inference is still based on your personal experience, your personal experience of something impersonal or transpersonal. However, uh, uh, in response to you, Kurt, and directed back, when, uh, to you, Bernardo, when we did discuss 
these experiences, and I've had them, uh, like of the pre consciousness event or, you know, profound experiences of non-dual oneness, um, they gave me, and, and, and if I remember correctly, and I may be remembering incorrectly because memory isn't reconstructive, uh, one of the things I was just alluding to a few minutes ago, and I don't know how or why that happens, uh, I mean, it's phenomenologically, uh, but it gave me something that at least sort of in a Kantian sense, I could give uh, what Kant would call an intuition. I could, there was some empirical experience um, that I could use to give content to the proposal you were making of cosmic mind. So although I agree with you, and thank you for defending me, that was, that was gracious on your part, uh, that it doesn't get, um, I think, beyond the, the symmetry issue, uh, I, do agree, I do think uh, uh, that, and, and that your acknowledgement that, uh, about that that might be a better place to look uh, for, for making the extrapolation, um, I, that, I found that personally helpful. I found that helpful in the discussion because I got a better sense of, ah, and then, and, and that brings me back to the point where now maybe we can move, this is how we're apart, and I, I, I really do want to try and close the gap. Um, I, I don't think we'll close it all the way, but because when I'm in that state, I get a sense of what perhaps Whitehead is meeting by prehension, uh, because there isn't, there aren't objects, right? There's just, there's this oneness where everything is prehending everything else. And do you mind defining prehension for the audience? Yeah. So uh, this, so uh, for Whitehead, uh, he's, he's trying to get a word other than experience or feeling, which he's also willing to use. Uh, and that would be, I, I know you're not a panpsychist, uh, uh, Bernardo, but I, like I said, I'm, I, I, I'm sincerely trying to do bridge building here. Um, and, and so, um, and I, and I did talk about that with Matt. So, he 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 wants he he came up with the term because he wanted to get away from the terms um, experience and feeling because they they were laden with our egocentric uh, sense of these terms and that would make him guilty of kind of a lazy anthropomorphism for example and he was very worried about that I think legitimately so um, and to be fair to him you know the people you know you've got Heisenberg and other people talking about these connections. Uh, that seem to be going on between consciousness and, you know, you know, the emergence of quantum particles and things like that. And I don't want to get into all the woo around that. I'm just trying to give a bit of background for explanation. Uh, and, and I know Bernardo does not rely on that woo. And so I'm not accusing anybody of anything here. Uh, I'm just trying to. But so Jung was very interested in and, and then not Jung. Well, Whitehead was very interested in and he was trying to get at, OK, again, if we take the, uh, the root of ancient epistemology rather than Cartesian epistemology. Gerson does a good job of it, right? The Cartesian project, which I think is prototypical for modernity's understanding of epistemology, is you start from first-person experience and you try to build the world out from that. And that has become extremely problematic. Ancient epistemology says, no, assume that knowledge is real. And then what kind of ontology must there be in order for there to be knowledge? And it works, it works outward in rather than inward out. And I think Gerson makes a good case for we should go back and really look at that as a serious uh, 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 alternative because of the deep binds epistemology is now in. Um, all the, I think all the attempts to build foundations have, have basically crumbled. Uh, okay, all of that said, Whitehead said, I'm going to presuppose that there's intelligibility there's, and there's causation. 
and he's very well aware of the Humean problem, uh, you know, about causation, and then he's very well aware of Kant, and he's trying to get beyond both of those. So what he's saying is what we need to understand is how the past is real in the present, right? So instead of thinking of the events as billiard balls that are isolated from each other and somehow have some specious present content, what we have to see is how the past is realized, and I'm using that in both senses, in the present. So the idea is, his idea is, and if you think about it, let me do a little bit of a thought experiment to help make this plausible. I'm just arguing for its plausibility right now, right? So if I ask you, you know, what caused the sinking of the Titanic? Notice that your answer is dependent on the event you want to explain. Like, well, it hit an iceberg. But why did it sink in the North Atlantic? Oh, well, because they were competing with the Americans. Why did it sink on April whatever? Well, because the iceberg broke off then. Why is there ice there? Well, here's the previous period of glacier. And eventually what you get is the entire previous history of the universe, which is the actual, and this is sort of a Hegelian point, which is the actual explanation of any event. And then, you, and then White had said, well, that's, that, that's not, all of these events are somehow prehending each other insofar as they come into this event. So things, ha, things are prehending each other insofar as the past comes into the present and also insofar as the present affords the future. And so if you can sort of, th- you can think of all of the universe coming into this event, but also that event over there. And then all of these events are also being drawn together. All these new emergent events are being drawn together into the new events that are happening. And so things have this prehensive relationship to each other. They are, they are, they are realizing, and I'm, I'm really playing on that word, they are realizing and being realized in each other. And then Whitehead said, and that, this is also why he used the word prehension, because it's at the root of our word apprehension, comprehension, a fundamental sort of intelligibility process. And his idea is that realization within things, very similar to Plotinus's idea that everything is contemplating, but it's not like how we contemplate, right? It, it, it's, it's of the same kind as the cognitive realizations that we're having when we are comprehending or apprehending things. And so there's a deep continuity between the way reality is realizing itself and the way we come to moments of realization of reality. Did that work at all, or was that really confusing? Ian McIlgrist is making this point now recently. Yep. It's uh, yep. his latest. It's and, clear and so, to me. And, and so, I, I mean, I, I had a conversation with Jonathan Pajot, who should definitely appear on this channel, by the way, Kurt. Um, and I'm happy to come on and have a, have a discussion with him at some point. There is a conversation between me and Jonathan. No, no, I, a while I, ago. Yeah, yeah. Like a no, I, I, I mean, Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I meant. I mean, one of these. Um, uh, and and to, because I was, I was in debate. Uh, again, this kind of debate. Sorry, Bernardo, I'm talking quite a bit. Uh, <laughs> it's okay. No, go ahead. It's yeah. very enjoyable. And non, <laughs> non... <laughs> so I was having a, like, a, a, like one of these, a fellowship debate, uh, Dialogos with him about this. Um, and he said to me, he said, well, John, don't you think there's something like relevance realization going on in reality at large? He was proposing, of course, the Platonic idea of the Logos. He's a Christian Platonist because he's, uh, uh, he's an Orthodox in the sense of Eastern Orthodox Christian. And I, th- and, he, and I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, uh, and we sort of had to tease it out because it was, it was sort of an unclear idea, but, uh, but we worked it out together. And, he was, and then I realized he was proposing something like Whitehead. You know, here's all the possibilities. 
that are metaphysically available, and then there's something that constrains them to probabilities that constrains them to right uh, to actual events. And he said, and then that affords and makes possible, and it rules out certain things. And he says, isn't there something analogous? And then I thought, hmm, that's a very interesting proposal, that there's something analogous to intelligence going on in the universe, and there's something analogous to how relevance realization works, and that would help to metaphysically ground the intelligibility of the universe, because there would be uh, you know, a participatory conformity, a shared uh, kind of identity between the way reality is realizing itself and the way cognition realizes itself. And then for me, that came together in Nishitani's proposal that religion is the real self-realization of reality. That So when you get to these states of pure consciousness, enlightenment, there's no deep difference between the, realiza- the relevance realization going on here and, if you'll allow me, the intelligibility realization going on out there. And that actually, because I, I think without genuine participation, and I think this is where Bernardo and I perhaps agree, you don't have a, a real response to absolute skepticism. There has to be some way in which the mind and the world are fundamentally the same in order for knowledge to be possible between them. And so I, I know this isn't your position, Bernardo, but I, I hope you could see how, you know, in the last two weeks in reflection, I, 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 I feel like it's closer to your position, at oh, least. It, it, I, it's probably closer than, than, than you think. Um, I mean, I wouldn't go as far as to give complete ontological power to, to cognition or sure, sure, to, sure. to the epistemic side of things. But there, there are many lines of evidence indicating that um, how the world is cognized plays an enormous role in, in what the world can be said to be. Yeah, uh, yeah. Th- there is a physicist from the Austrian Academy of Sciences. I, I, ref- I, I quote him a lot uh, uh, recently, Marcus Miller, and uh, he tries to develop a, a physics of first-person perspective. Mm-hmm. So his his idea is that what we call the objective outside world is constructed by an inferential process that we make. We ask ourselves question, questions like, what does the world need to be in order for me to account for this observation? Mm-hmm. Uh, and he, he claims that uh, if we construct our world inferentially like that, then statistically you can prove that your world will be consistent with mine and with everybody else's, even though it's not an objective world. It's constructed mm-hmm. by our own inferences. Mm-hmm. It emerges from a first-person perspective. We also have evidence now, uh, well, evidence, there's mathematics sort of showing that. Um, what's his name? It's a, a British neuroscientist. Uh, forgot his name, uh, but he shows that um, unless perception would be largely inferential, in other words, instead of mirroring the states of the world as it is in itself, we sort of construct it by inference. Unless that is the case, we couldn't maintain our structural and dynamical integrity. So Carl the, Friston. The, Carl Friston. Right, exactly. predictive processing. Yes. And there's, yes. There's a lot of work going on right now, and if people are interested, uh, there's a video I recently had with Brett Anderson. Uh, about the, the the need to uh, uh, the need to integrate a predictive processing and relevance realization models together. Uh, I won't go into the argument in detail, but the main argument is, uh, you know, and, and Friston, by the way, has moved and said when he's using the word inference, he's using it like not necessarily representationally. He's he go, he's for embodied uh, inactive senses of that. Uh, so he's, I'm not pinning him to any kind of propositional tyranny. He has explicitly moved away from that, as has Andy Clark. 
Um, so when we, when, we, when we say inference, they always do this now, uh, which is fine. Uh, I'm happy with that. Uh, I, I want to make clear that they, 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 they have, they're not falling into some sort of simplistic Cartesian thing. Uh, but the idea is you need something, what's called precision uh, weighting within uh, predictive processing. It's basically the attentional function. And the main argument is the, what you can see is the relevance realization machinery work and the precision weighting that's at the core of predictive processing actually integrate really, really nicely uh, together. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I do, I, I, I do think, um, I, 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 you know, Priston's idea that the, the brain is predicting itself proximately, and as it gets really good at predicting itself proximately, it distally ends up predicting the world uh, uh, quite well. And like I said, I, I'm, a, uh, I, I'm a realist about this because uh, I think, uh, and again, the evidence that most of our perception is accurate prediction rather than accurate detection I don't like when people say it's a hallucination because hallucinations are by definition not true. Um, what we have is accurate prediction, right? So it looks like I'm seeing the whole wall over there is white. Actually, I'm, yeah, I'm subtending a few pieces, sampling, and I'm doing really, really good theorizing, again, in scare quotes, right? That's giving me accurate prediction, right? Yeah. And, 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 and so I take it... So. Again, for me, there's, there, but I, I take it that there's something about the way the world is such that that works, right? Um, and and there, there, uh, that there's an intelligibility. I, so, like, for example, what epistemologies are, am I rejecting? Just to be clear by contrast, I'm rejecting a, a very romantic epistemology that says the, blank, the world out there is a blank cabinet on which I project. And, I, and the construction is arbitrary and subjective on my part. Um, and I'm, I'm also rejecting the empiricist position. No, no, I, I'm just a blank slate that receives the truth from the world. Uh, I think both of those are are deeply undermined. And so I agree with that, you on oh, both right, accounts. Yes, and so I, uh, that's why I've tried to coin this idea of transjectivity, uh, the idea that the world's intelligibility and my relevance realization machinery together are co-creating the knowledge. You have to talk to Jan McGilgrist. I have. I talked to him once. We had okay. a beautiful conversation. We, we, we do want to talk again. Uh, it's just a matter of us. And, and uh, what we agreed is he, I would wait until his book on wisdom uh, was done, which it now Comes is. Out. So I'm going to reach I think he finished. It. He finished yeah. this week. I, I think well, you're so. supposed to finish mid-May. So, so um, I'm going to reach out to him and, uh, uh, yeah, we'll have another discussion with him. It was a wonderful discussion. Uh, so for me, and I don't know if we want to segue now. I don't want to bully the conversation. But for me... That, and, and, and Bernardo's right, I, I mean, sort of the deepest ontology uh, for me doesn't have to be resolved one way or the other. Although I am, I, like I said, I, 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 I'm trying to show that I take his work seriously and I'm trying to respond by moving my position. Um, and and uh, because I think we should be, I, the Socratic ideal is we should be responsible to uh, well-presented arguments. Um, so I, I'm not denying that, but but... Uh, this notion of transactivity and the co-determination, co-creation between intelligibility, this which I call a participatory knowing, for me, that's the ultimate uh, grounding relationship for meaning in life. Um, and I think one of the reasons why I kept hesitating around the Cartesian proposal is I think our, and Bernardo, I think, uh, said something very consonant with it, our reduction of our sense of who we are as cognitive agents to uh, proposers of propositions has disconnected us from procedural 
perspectival and ultimately this participatory kind of knowing that grounds and uh, uh, grounds in depth um, our capacity be, for being connected to ourselves, to each other in the world. And that, for me, is the sig- most significant contributor of the meaning crisis, not independent of all the historical reasons, but I think the historical reasons ultimately bite into us existentially at that deep kind of forgetting we are having. Now, we're not forgetting it functionally, and this is where Bernardo's distinction between you know it being realized and it being metacognitively appreciated comes to the fore. Although we've lost our metacognitive access to all these kinds of knowing, they're, of course, still operating in, in us, or else the, I wouldn't see this floor as walkable. I, yeah. I'm not doing that, right? It's the world, this is Gibson's idea, the, the affordance emerges in the co-shaping of the world and me together, etc. Uh, but that metacognitive loss, which I think translates into a spiritual loss, I would, 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 I would say grounds out in an ontological issue, namely the issue of, you know, what is it about the meaning making that, that what, what makes that possible? What affords that? Um, and so what I'll, I'll say two sentences, hopefully or three, and then I'll turn it back over to Bernardo. In so, I mean, I'm trying, uh, and, and it's sincere. I, I'm, tra- I'm trying to move and get closer because I think, I think that at least the movement that I'm capable of making right now, maybe I'm still resistant, but I'm trying to be responsible, right, um, helps to strengthen this account, this ancient epistemological account of the deep participation between intelligence and intelligibility that makes meaning in life possible for us. And that shouldn't be understood as the content, the semantic content of our propositions. And I think even though he may go deeper than I do, we at least converge below that propositional level of meaning making, at least it seems to me. If, if the goal was for us to get closer to each other, I think we can high five uh, right now. <laughs> we've, we, we've met uh, at a place where I'm entirely comfortable uh, to be with you. Uh, I'm more and more uh, open to this idea of co-creation, although I'll be honest with you, I started out as a objective idealist. Right, the right. world is really out there. It, yeah, yeah. it is whatever it is. It, and it happens to be mental and it presents itself to my dashboard of perceptual instruments as what I call the physical world. But uh, uh, more and more as I keep studying the work of people like Ian, Marcus Miller, yourself, uh, it's becoming clear to me that I think even at an ontological level, this participatory co-creation is deeper than just at at the story level it, it right. it's not just a nice story there is yeah. there is ontological teeth to this mm. yeah. know what i mean right. and, and for me what is important is that uh, if we have empirical and rational reasons to contemplate a theory of reality seriously that does give this participatory co-creation ontological teeth then we should leverage that because otherwise it becomes just psychology and yeah, not real. Yeah, yeah, and I yeah. think that's where the search for meaning can flounder because people like me um, who are always critically questioning everything, you know, if, if, if this story reinvests my life with meaning and it intuitively resonates profoundly with me, but I don't have a coherent, explicit and well-constructed conceptual theory of reality that gives it plausible ontological teeth, 
then I run away from it, driven by this need to not deceive myself, which for me is instinctual. Know what I yeah. mean? I, I agree. And um, so I think it's fair and honest to say that I'm trying to do that. Uh, and, 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 you know, and, and part of that process is, and I have explicitly argued that I think, in fact, it should be, is a dialogical process. I'm aware of my side bias and confirmation bias and things like that. Um, and I'm also aware of the, that the Neoplatonic tradition talked about both the dialectic within the individual and between individuals, and then between individuals and reality. And coordinating those three dialectics is something that I think is going to be needed for doing this. So um, I, I, I appreciate what you said. Um, I, I had understood that. And, and, uh, how do I want to put this? Uh, I, I didn't do enough. I'll be more self-critical. I didn't do enough about trying to bring together um, what you might call the cognitive scientific machinery and what I'll call for my sake the Neoplatonic ontology. Um, I, I talked about it, but I did not foreground that in Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. I've been trying to do that more recently in conversations like with you, like with Matt, uh, uh, like with Sam Adams, and like with Jonathan Pajot. Um, so that is very much, and, and this is not to, I mean, I, I think I'm pursuing them reliably and rigorously. Uh, I'm not claiming to be anywhere near finished. That would just be ridiculous and hubristic. Uh, so I, 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 I take your point seriously is what I'm trying to say. And, and I see myself as trying to address that lacuna in previous work, which is one of the reasons why I want to be here and, and do this, what's happening right now. Um, I don't like, I don't like uh, versions of idealism. And, and I've made it clear that I'm not putting this on you, Bernardo. I don't like versions of idealism that afford spiritual bypassing, that afford not taking seriously science. One of the things that continually impressed me is both your knowledge of and your respect for uh, empirical and theoretical science. Um, you should know, maybe you move in different circles than I do. That's not the norm uh, for with the people that I interact with when I'm largely up against people who propose cosmic consciousness and things like that. Um, and so uh, to, the, to the degree to which uh, that's being used to to do spiritual bypassing, I, I will remain opposed to it. Because like you, I think if we make it purely a psychological project, we're ultimately still being romantics. We're ultimately still saying, I'm making, and I'm, I'm uh, even the, the, the favorite word of the romantics, I'm expressing it. I'm expressing <laughs> it onto the world, right? And so I'm deeply uh, critical of that. So I do think, and, and I think we agreed on this last time, but just to bring it foregrounded again, I do think that there's an inescapable ontological dimension uh, and, uh, and, and a needed reconstruction of our ontology in order to finally address the meaning crisis. Um, now, the, the one concern I have, um, and this is not a philosophical concern between you and I, um, is the issue of how do we do that without making it a requirement that everybody who wants to respond to the meaning crisis engage in the education that's required to undertake this kind of ontological discussion? So that's you understand what I'm trying to say? It definitely has epistemological priority, but that, that we don't want to 
hijack the existential project by giving it existential priority. Exactly. That's the key question. Yeah. What would be useful would be to get your views on mind uploading, because I think this will further the distinction between you both. So, Bernardo, what are your thoughts on mind uploading? Is it possible? Is it ridiculous? So could, could you be more specific, Kurt? Because there's different, there's different, I mean, mind uploading is we're being uploaded into some universal simulation. That's very different from I could upload my mind into some, into some computational device. They, they yeah. carry all kinds of different ontological uh, commitments. So that second one where the Ray Kurzweilian one. You, yeah. you want to ask me what yes, I think you, about it? Bernardo. Uh, complete and utter nonsense. Rubbish not deserving of yeah, academic yeah. credibility. Yeah, I agree. Why? Totally. Because it's a, it's a category confusion. Yeah. Uh, um, we are basically pre-assuming that a description of our minds is our minds. Because what you upload is a description. What you upload is a copy of states at least relative to one another, not even absolutely, because the, the, the substrate is different. One is an organic substrate, the other one is a silicon substrate. But even if you s ignore this glaring, absolutely significant difference, and you fall into the sea of abstraction that today is plaguing academia to the point that we have achieved liftoff from the terra firma of reality, and, and we now engage in, in endless pure abstraction, even if I concede, which I don't, but even if I were to concede that the substrate has no significance, which of course it has, but uh, even then, uh, upload a copy of the states from one substrate to another doesn't necessarily mean that you've transferred the thing in itself which is described. Uh, um, I, 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 we use this metaphor again, I use it all the time, but I, I don't want to overuse it, but it brings it to life. I can simulate kidney function on my computer accurately yeah. down to the molecular detail, but that doesn't mean my computer will be on my desk. So mind uploading is something that you could see the same way. You can upload a very accurate description of the states of my mind, the dynamisms of my mind, into a silicon substrate and replicate those dynamisms in that other substrate with complete accuracy. That doesn't mean that my mind has moved to, the sil to that silicon substrate or that the silicon substrate has a conscious copy of me. Uh, to assume that it is entails so many assumptions about the nature of mind, the nature of metabolism, the nature of silicon, the nature of information. I mean, it, it, it's a hidden pile of arbitrary, unjustified assumptions that one needs to overlook to take this idea even seriously to begin with. So I think this is just an expression of the profound confusion that faces our culture today and which uh, affects the most intelligent, uh, intelligence defined in a very restricted, uh, old-fashioned mm. way, but it unfairly affects the most intelligent segments of our culture more than people who are, quote, less intelligent, between uh, air quotes, but are much more grounded uh, in reality. Um, look, I am, I am by original education, a computer engineer. I, I emphasize the engineering over computer science, which I could also say I was. But engineering is grounded in the sense that, uh, you know, whatever theories are, uh, engineering is about what works. Um, 
that's how I started. And uh, I, I, we had, at least the people I was involved with, we had physical intuition about what computation is. But today I see computer scientists out there, some of which you have interviewed, I found out uh, a couple of days ago, who are waving a PhD around and, and, and get a lot of airtime. But these guys don't have anything more than a vague conceptual intuition about what real computing is. Yeah. They operate on 20 levels of abstraction, pre-assuming the existence of all kinds of tools, all kinds of APIs, all kinds of things. And they live in that world of pure abstraction, so disconnected from reality that uh, some of them will tell you, well, I built a conscious machine the other day. <laughs> oh, really? Okay. <laughs> So what do you think of Yosha Bach's idea of consciousness as a simulated property of computation? It's totally nonsensical, spout out by somebody who has no clue what he's talking about. Okay, do you mind telling the audience, because what I said was one sentence description, do you mind giving them a better sense as to what Yosha's point of view is, and then telling us why you think it's nonsense? And then, John, I imagine you agree, but I imagine you agree perhaps for a different reason, so that at that point I'd like you to come I in. Yeah, I, I agree for those reasons and convergent reasons, but I'll, I'll be quiet. So, Bernardo, explain Yosha Bach's point of view. Well, I don't, I don't, I'm, not an, I'm not <laughs> a specialist on his particular point of view. I, I recall that I have had an interaction with him, but many years ago, uh, he came to my website and ultimately, I think I had to block him because he was, he was uh, uh, how do you call it, trolling me uh, online at some point. Um, the beginning yeah. of our exchanges were objective, were based on argument, but it got to a point where he just sort of went down the deep end. <laughs> I don't know what motivated uh, that change. I'm not a specialist in his particular content. I have seen snapshots here and there. Uh, so I, I rather speak more generally of this notion that consciousness is a simulation. This is one instance of a trick that is uh, very tempting to apply uh, in our culture. It's a trick against your, your, your own self, uh, which is to explain what is fundamentally not explainable in terms of the assumptions we make by redefining that which we want to explain. Mm -hmm. You see, uh, for instance, uh, we have no idea what consciousness is, right? There is a hard problem of consciousness, so if we make reductionist physicalist assumptions, and I'm using the word reductionist here to differentiate that from, from John's position. If you start from reductionist physicalist assumptions, you have an impossible problem to deduce the qualities of experience from physical parameters alone. That's called the, the hard problem of consciousness. So consciousness becomes unexplainable. So what's the move that a lot of people do? They define consciousness as opposed to explaining it. So some people will say, well, I solved the hard problem. Consciousness is the electromagnetic field dynamics surrounding your neocortex. That's not an explanation. That's a redefinition. I can do the same thing. I can say consciousness is the in involuntary wiggling of my left big toe. <laughs> hard problem solved. I have a friend who calls it the Pinocchio theories of consciousness, which are explanations by redefinition. And it's not entirely arbitrary because they're usually leveraging some empirical correlations. Like there is a correlation between electromagnetic field dynamics surrounding the neocortex and reported experience. Or there is a, corre you know, a correlation between uh, um, 
uh, electrochemical uh, neuronal firings and, and reported experience. So it leverages those correlations loosely and then explains by redefining the term. Now, we, we only get away with this, with the one profound mystery that seems inaccessible to our uh, reductionist physicalist assumptions, which, which is consciousness. For everything else, you would be immediately perceived as a clown if you tried to do something like that to explain anything else. But our intuitions of plausibility fail when it comes to consciousness. We sort of become gullible, collectively gullible to all kinds of nonsense because it's such a mysterious thing that uh, you sort of give yourself freedom to, ent to entertain stupidity uh, validated by the notion that you need to entertain something far out in order to, to sort of squeeze this into the parameters of reductionist physicalism. There is no other way. Therefore, it becomes plausible by construction. But that plausibility is an artifact of the assumptions you make. It has nothing to do with reason and empirical evidence. So, so to say consciousness is just a simulation is as arbitrary as to say consciousness is the wiggling of my left big toe. Are you explaining anything by saying this? No, you're explaining nothing. You're just engaging into an orgy of conceptual fantasies and, and, and losing ground with the concreteness of the world, with the concreteness of our own being as organic uh, beings, metabolizing uh, beings. I find this approach to things no better than fantastical fantasizing, just as stupid as fantastic fantasizing. John, your thoughts? Well, first of all, that was beautiful, and I enjoyed being <laughs> present to that. Um, you know, <laughs> I, I also object to you know explaining woo with goo, um, which a lot of these things are. You know, like you know, this is weird, and this is weird. Oh, therefore, therefore, uh, you know, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, so uh, uh, I. I I agree with a lot of what Bernardo said. I think it's a ridiculous proposal, and I think the fact that we're taking it seriously flies in the face of good theoretical argument, like Bernardo just said, and even our accumulating empirical evidence. I'll talk a bit about the second first, but because I, I want to give more emphasis to the theoretical points. I mean, what was giving this some initial plausibility was computer-human interface. Um, and initially, what's, it, what's surprising is two things. So, for example... Uh, this isn't, notice how this doesn't get as much press as the other. So, you know, we're getting machines that can t look, uh, you know, do significant EEG and tell what you're thinking. Tell if you're thinking of apple or pear. Never anything abstract, by the way. Uh, well, it turns out that now we've, we've realized that all of those experiments were bullshit. They all suffer from failure of replication if you control for confounds within the data. So it all goes away, right? So it's initially, wait. Right. Maybe, you know, finding one to one neural correlates between our shared concepts and what's happening in our brains is, uh, you know, not maybe that's a, something we should challenge. Michael Anderson, for example, in his book After Phrenology, has said we should be giving up the idea of like strictly localized functions, et cetera, in the brain. So even that kind of reading idea that I can somehow do that. It is, it, it's, so I'm not, I'm not saying it's been falsified. I'm saying the stuff that gave it empirical plausibility has vanished. Uh, and, and so the, the historical inability to find the neural correlate of consciousness, right, uh, which everybody sort of grudgingly agrees to right now, points out that this is actually a really, really hard problem, just at an empirical level. 
So the claims that, like the idea that, uh, wow, given our current empirical success, I can plot this graph, and in 2040, that's bullshit. That is just not paying attention. We are not having that kind of empirical success. Now, that's not the more important argument, but I wanted to make that argument because that argument undermines the graphs that seem to lend the air of predictability and science to this. Okay, there's no empirical extrapolation going on because there's nothing right now to be empirically extrapolated from. Okay, now notice what I'm going to say one more time. That wasn't an empirical you know, falsification, but it means don't take that seriously because it's not extrapolation. Okay, now the theoretical point. I agree with everything Bernardo said, and let me try and say something that I think is convergent. Um, so, Kurtz, I mean, first of all, the, you know, the work of my colleague Brian Cantwell Smith at the University of Toronto in the philosophy of computation shows that the model of computation that's being presupposed by these people is very inadequate. What is that model, by the way? Um, and, and so that model, as far as I can tell when I look at it, um, uh, is the, the proposal, which was taken very seriously in first wave cognitive science, so I'm very familiar with it, that cognition is a formal system that we can capture, that the mind is very much like the game of chess. What do I mean by that? Well, chess is a formal system in that it doesn't depend on the matter that it's made out of. I can play chess with pieces of wood. I can play chess with pieces of uh, uh, stone. I can play chess with helicopters with flags on them, a building top, right? And I, what's really interesting is I can start playing chess in wood, move to metal, move to stone, move to helicopter, and it's all the same game. And so, and I can do the same thing with computer files. See how I can move them around? Because they're purely formal systems. The problem you face with formal systems is there are knockdown arguments that they cannot ha- they they render qualitative experience causally inert. They have to, and also that they cannot. Ca- formal systems are formal systems precisely because they are completely internally defined, and therefore they cannot grasp the meaning relation. The problem of how to get the computer to find its processing meaningful to the computer cannot be answered with informal systems. Formal systems can't explain development. If your formal system, if your cognition is ultimately a formal system, it is bound by a logic, a system of axioms and functions. You know what you can't do? You can't compute within a formal system and get to a stronger formal system. You can't, you can't work within predicate logic. And if I just manipulate it fast enough, I'll get modal logic. Yeah. That can't happen. But human beings go through qualitative development. I am capable of cognition now that I would never be capable, no matter how much information you gave me, that I was as a five-year-old. So formal systems can't deal with the inherently developmental nature of cognition. They can't deal with the inherently non-propositional aspects of cognition, like procedural knowing, perspectival knowing, participatory knowing. Also, and I think Bernardo made this point, I want to reinforce it. I I argue, and this is a, 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 it's not consensus, but it is a prominent and increasing position within 4E cognitive science, that Cognition is deeply continuous with the, peop- the principles of life, so that cognition is like, not like chess. It's more like football. The actual causal properties of the thing doing it are relevant to its functionality. So there is no cognition without life, biologic, autopoetic life. And so I, I think everything I've said is consistent with what Bernardo said, but I, say, I think of all of these argu- arguments converging with the ones he said— and so that, ma- that, that is uh, not 
common sense plausibility. That's normative plausibility. There's a lot of convergence of independent lines of argument and evidence. There's a paucity of empirical evidence for it. So the position is radically implausible to my mind. I think that that's uh, very close to what Bernardo was saying when he thinks it's bullshit. And I think that we're pinning our hopes on some kind of silicon rapture into simulated heaven, um, I think is a ridiculous uh, uh, response to the meaning crisis. And just the idea, like, where, like, what is the ontology of a simulation? You're ultimately relying on the idea that somehow it's an illusion. What is having the illusion of consciousness? <laughs> yeah. Where's the ontolo- ontological basis of that? Okay, Bernardo, <laughs> what are your responses to this? And please do so with the same intensity yelling at the camera. <laughs> 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 it was beautiful to sit here and watch uh, uh, John do this. Uh, I, I, I wish it had gone on a, a little longer. <laughs> I was not ready to have it finished yet. <laughs> John's looking clean. I don't know if that's the same person that he said clean in all caps. John's looking sh- clean. I don't know if I'm that's sh- the same I, person I, that said John is sexy from before. I sh- I, I'm, I'm clean shaven now. I had a beard last time. Maybe that's what they're referring to. Okay. All right. Bernardo. Uh, look, I think this this ties back to to my favorite favorite part of John's message, which is, who are we looking up to uh, for wisdom? Mm-hmm. What mm-hmm. do we consider wisdom? Is this the arbitrary, implausible fantasizing of uh, uh, Bach, uh, Joshua Bach? Uh, is that what we call uh, wisdom today, uh, um, or is it? just a fancy flight from reality, which we give us license to do because we are facing problems that our assumptions do not allow us to solve, and which is quickly going towards a religious direction. And John hinted on it, didn't elaborate mm. on it. I was, I was hoping he would continue <laughs> on <laughs> on that path. But singularitarianism, a la Ray Kurzweil, is a distorted expression of the religious impulse in all of us. It's part of being human. I agree. That, that you sort of, you, you, you aspire for a greater power, a power that uh, would be or is in control, uh, a power that is aligned with yourself in terms of shared values. So you, you sort of, you exert control by proxy. You do not have control over nature, but that, that greater power, which does have control over nature, shares your values. So it's controlled by proxy in, in, in the, 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 the psychology of the situation. And with a very restricted and poor and uh, set of assumptions like uh, reductionist physicalism, that instinct, that aspiration towards, you know, numinosity, religious numinosity, has to find a way to express itself through the restricted channels it's given. Uh, uh, And what happens then? Well, it's singularitarianism. It's computers will be conscious. Uh, Not only that, you will be able to upload your consciousness into computers, thereby becoming immortal, which is one of the key religious ideas, you know, be, you become immortal, achieving immor- immortality. And, and because of the singularity, machines will be able to construct ever more intelligent machines uh, with an exponential growth. And at some point, there will be a machine that is effectively God, uh, the Almighty, which controls everything and would keep us uh, fed, healthy and entertained like in a Disneyland type zoo. Uh, as inferior animals having a great life, 
Um, and we could look upon this great singularity machine as, as the Almighty Father. Um, so what you see there is the religious impulse expressing itself in profoundly distorted ways, which are outright uh, contradictory to reason. And in that sense, you might say, well, as contradictory uh, with reason as any other religion. Okay, I take that. Um, but it is much more deficient of meaning than all the other religions, because it aims at satisfying only sort of the base level of religious aspirations, meaning immortality and the almighty uh, God, but it fails to address uh, what is the meaning and purpose of our lives. Uh, it gives you sort of um, a way out of our deepest anxieties, which is the anxiety of death and the anxiety of not being in control. Now you can upload yourself and live forever and exert control by proxy because this supercomputer will share your values since you made it. Uh, but it doesn't give us, you know, Viktor Frankl's or John Verveke's uh, will to meaning. Uh, it doesn't give us a path towards that. It may buy us the sense that we have then time, infinite time, to figure out the question of meaning later, uh, but it doesn't give us a path towards that, unlike the other religions. All the world's main religions give you some kind of path to a, a realization of, of meaning. So, yeah, I think that's what's going on. I think uh, these, these movements like singularitarianism and consciousness uploading, um, they are just an expression of the religious impulse and as, at least, as irrational and as devoid of empirical uh, uh, foundations, uh, as devoid of internal logical coherence uh, as, as the better known religious myths uh, going on around. I thought, uh, oh, I was just going to say, that was beautiful. I, I don't know if you've heard it, Bernardo, but it goes back to your point about, uh, you know, the, the, the elevation of the nerds. I've heard Kurzweil described as the rapture of the nerds uh, from the, the sort of Christian evangelical idea of, of the rapture of the, of the saved. And yeah, so the, the rapture of the nerds. I don't know if you'd heard that. I just thought I'd throw that out for you. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I will. I, I do want at some point, Kurt, to uh, uh, to I want to like respond. I, I this sure, this sure, whole... sure. Respond quickly if you don't mind. Well, I'll, I'll just lay down a foreshadowing. Is is I would really like to uh, discuss more. Uh, I mean, complete agreement. Uh, but I I think I think this is symptomatic. It's not an isolated thing. I think we see throughout our culture many attempts to to create ersatz religions to try and give expression to this impulse, which tells me two things. As a psychologist, tells me we should be paying attention to this impulse. If it, if 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 if, the, if it can't be repressed, it ultimately comes out in frustrated forms. And besides, you know, the the scientific, uh, you know, fantasies, we of course have pseudo-religious uh, political ideologies that are doing similar things. So, what is that impulse, and why is it there? I think is yes. a very important question uh, we should ask. Secondly, and in connection with that, and I'll just lay this down, I want to come back and say more about this. One of the deep differences is the offloading of the requirement for transformation. So one of the big things that happens in the Middle Ages with the advent of nominalism, and then it gets taken up uh, much later and extended, and it's part of the loss to the will to meaning, I would say, is the idea, and you, you, can, see, you can see quotes of this, like I could get you quotes just from Descartes saying this, that we can access the deepest truths without undergoing even the most superficial of transformations. Before that turning point, 
there was the idea that deep truths required substantial, right? That, that you couldn't separate the knowledge project from the wisdom project. That, that, that deep truths required deep transformation. Even in the way people read the Bible, for example, uh, was fundamentally different. Uh, I can talk about that later. Uh, I, I'm, not, I'm not proselytizing for Christianity. I'm just pointing to that as an example. And so what you see with the rapture of the nerds is, I don't have to do any transformation. I can get the deep truths just by doing some abstract theorizing. And then I can then realize the existential change also just in term. And so the, and I'm just expanding, I think, Bernardo, on what you talked about when you're saying there's no path. There's no path for transformation. There's no path, right? And I, uh, I, I we, think about how ridiculous this claim is. We believe very deeply for everybody until we're at... Like, I believe that kids have to go through fundamental transformations before they're capable of accessing certain ontological aspects of reality. And I think most people, if, right, would, would agree with that. It's like, no, no, the kid needs to mature more. They need to grow more, right? They need, right? Before they can, right? So don't explain Heidegger to a five-year-old, right? For something like that, mm, right? Okay. So, but we've got this fictional myth that when we're 20, that stops. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. You don't need to go through any more cognitive transformation or development in order to access deeper ontological uh, commitments. Now, Plato, for my primary example, held exactly the opposite view, right? As the child is to the adult, the adult is to the sage. Just like you had to go through a lot of transformation to be able to see through self-deception and self-illusion, self-deception and illusion to get deeper ontological purchase, you still have to do it now. There is there there is no there's no there's no spiritual bypassing. You can't just adopt a bunch of beliefs. So, the the path. I, 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 I'm trying to really deepen the path. <laughs> I'm trying to really say, like, we have got to give up this fiction that we're finished in terms of our cognitive access to reality when we're 20 or 25 years of age. Hear that sound? That's the sweet sound of success with Shopify. Shopify is the all-encompassing commerce platform that's with you from the first flicker of an idea to the moment you realize you're running a global enterprise. Whether it's handcrafted jewelry or high-tech gadgets, Shopify supports you at every point of sale, both online and in person. They streamline the process with the internet's best converting checkout, making it 36% more effective than other leading platforms. There's also something called Shopify Magic, your AI-powered assistant that's like an all-star team member working tirelessly behind the scenes. What I find fascinating about Shopify is how it scales with your ambition. No matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Join the ranks of businesses in 175 countries that have made Shopify the backbone of their commerce. Shopify, by the way, powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, including huge names like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. If you ever need help, their award-winning support is like having a mentor that's just a click away. Now, are you ready to start your own success story? Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theories, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theories now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in, shopify.com slash theories. Razor blades are like diving boards. 
The longer the board, the more the wobble, the more the wobble, the more nicks, cuts, scrapes. A bad shave isn't a blade problem, it's an extension problem. Henson is a family-owned aerospace parts manufacturer that's made parts for the International Space Station and the Mars rover. Now they're bringing that precision engineering to your shaving experience. By using aerospace-grade CNC machines, Henson makes razors that extend less than the thickness of a human hair. The razor also has built-in channels that evacuates hair and cream, which make clogging virtually impossible. Henson Shaving wants to produce the best razors, not the best razor business. So that means no plastics, no subscriptions, no proprietary blades, and no planned obsolescence. It's also extremely affordable. The Henson razor works with the standard dual edge blades that give you that old school shave with the benefits of this new school tech. It's time to say no to subscriptions and yes to a razor that'll last you a lifetime. Visit hensonshaving.com everything. If you use that code, you'll get two years worth of blades for free. Just make sure to add them to the cart. Plus 100 free blades when you head to H-E-N-S-O-N-S-H-A-V-I-N-G dot com slash everything and use the code everything. This is so cathartic to listen to this. Go go on, go on. (laughs) I was going to say, I mean, even if everything else wasn't bullshit, which I think it is about Kurt's file, at what age do you want to be uploaded? (laughs) When you're 20? Man, I don't want to be a 20-year-old forever. How about 30? I don't want to be a 30. I'm 60 now, so I can talk. Do I even want to be 50 years old forever? Nope. It, it, it has become, I don't know, it, it probably has to do with the, the computer revolution of the 70s and the early 80s, that uh, the notion of nerdiness has become elevated to an ideal. Uh, it, it's, like, it's like, it's okay, it's good to be a nerd. It's, it counts in your favor because we are so focused on propositional knowledge and you know this the, the nerdish things uh, yeah. factual and propositional knowledge uh, and we lost sight that look it's not okay to be a nerd a nerd is by definition somebody who has a profound imbalance in the development of a number of psychic functions yes um, by focusing on only one could I, it's could a I jack of one, one trade could i just want uh, bernardo comes from a more continental position just because of uh, listeners, psychic doesn't mean anything to have to do with ESP. He's using oh, yes. the term, right? Just to, what we, we in North America typically say psychological, just so people aren't misunderstanding him here. I don't want him to make certain people in California happy by the invocation <laughs> of that term. Um, so, go, so, go, so go ahead, please, Bernardo. I just thought that was important to interject. No, thank you for that. Hey, I don't mean that. I mean psychic in the psychological uh, yeah. sense. We have many psychological functions. Uh, uh, emotional functions, feeling functions, intuitive functions, sense functions, people who really can perceive the world with the richness of the world, which I can't, for instance, Uh, and the ability to think in in according to to uh, axioms and rules of derivation, which is the nerd, the nerd way of thinking. uh, That's one psychic function, a sort of human computer, human calculator, who is able to write code, look, I, I I, I know that it was my my life, you know. I, I used to do that, uh, but th- to focus on that at the expense of maturity mm. on all the other aspects mm. of the psyche of of the mind, the human mind, is not okay. This should not be uh, elevated by our culture into a, a sort of goal, a sort of ideal. It's it. It's like you're talking about the veneration of intellect. 
only the modern sense of it, not the ancient sense of intellect, not the ancient sense at all. Exactly, exactly. Uh, It's a veneration of a a particular form of intellect, uh, which we now think it's okay. I mean, before we knew it was not okay. It was an offense to be called a nerd. Somehow it has become okay. Where did we take this wrong turn? It's not okay to be a nerd. It's okay to be a complete, mature, ever-evolving human being, ever-learning human being who has emotional intelligence, who pays attention to to intuition, uh, who who has empathy, who can share in the feelings of other people and therefore can can know what other people are are going through in their own minds, uh, um, who has uh, sensory skills, who is able to taste the flavor, the subtleties of the flavor of food and wine. How many of us can't do that? Uh, Who has maturity about life, uh, which uh, in the US, I think I am with James Hillman uh, on this. Uh, Hillman uh, used to say that the US is in love with innocence, which is Mm, uh, precisely this notion that uh, uh, the innocence of dividing the world into good and bad, black and white, that's something, that's a childish way of looking upon the world, because there is evil in all of us. Things are more subtle and complicated than just this division between two polarities. But uh, in in the US, according to to Jim Hillman, uh, this has become an ideal, this cult of innocence, which is a sort of a denial of the process of maturation. (laughs) It's unfortunate. So somehow we we are no longer elevating maturity, uh, which goes hand in hand with wisdom, uh, um, to, to, to its rightful place. Uh, we, we now think of old people as uh, uh, burdensome and old-fashioned, people out of, not in tune with the times, as, a, as opposed to mature people who have a lot to teach and share. Uh, we have this cult of innocence that Jim Hillman used to talk about. Uh, we have this uh, uh, the uh, um, idolatry of nerds, which is <laughs> my way of talking about it. Sorry to interrupt. I've been thinking about for quite some time, which is the way that we view the elderly in our culture. I wonder if the quality of a culture is how you view the elderly. And in our culture, in the West, we view them as well, we, we barely view them, we barely look up to them, and if we do, it's only as a repository of stories of the past. How is it that we should be viewing them? Well, look, I think you can make the mistake both ways. Uh, if you look at an old person, and by definition you expect wisdom from that person, yeah, <laughs> you're going too far because an old person, uh, old people have the same variability that, uh, that, no, not old, that non-old people uh, have. Um, but I think uh, what happened is that we've missed, we are no longer developing our sense for subtlety and nuance. Uh, we have become incapable to recognize subtlety and nuance. We want to divide everything into neat drawers with a clear label, because that's how we compartmentalize things, and that's how we give ourselves intellectual justification for not thinking things through. You just label it quickly, put it in a drawer, and you say, this is A, this is B, this is black, this is white. And that means that all the subtlety and nuance where the core of the message is flies over our heads. Uh, And because we've lost this sense for subtlety and nuance, we don't recognize the wisdom in old people because that wisdom expresses itself in subtlety and nuance, 
not in clear-cut recipes. And everybody wants an easy ride now, a clear-cut recipe. Just give me the seven steps to happiness. You know, that, that, that's what people want. And guess what? The, the treasure is just underneath a few layers of subtlety and nuance. You cannot bypass those. But we've lost our ability to see that. Therefore, we've lost our ability to recognize true wisdom, including true wisdom uh, in other people. We live in a falsified, uh, in, a, in an arbitrarily simplified world, so to say. And we, we make enormous efforts to confirm to ourselves that that's how the world is, because it makes life more, easily, more, more easier. So, so I want to follow up on that because that was, there's, uh, first of all, the, the, the last point that Bernardo made, uh, I, I want to give it some experimental empirical teeth uh, because, uh, so, uh, and just because one uh, work from uh, one of my colleagues at uh, the University of Toronto, Lynn Hasher, which does work on working memory. So one of the things that Hasher made clear is we, we've gone from sort of a simplistic working memory is just a holding to working memory is a higher order relevance uh, filter. Um, that's why things like chunking work for working memory. Anyways, there's just a lot of good evidence for that. Now, why am I bringing that up? Just give me a sec. Because there's very important correlations between measures of working memory, especially its ability to filter out irrelevant information, and measures of general intelligence. Those are re- they, 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 they at times approach a parity. So there's something deeply connected there. Okay, what does this all have to do with wisdom in old age? Okay, so when you take old people and young people and you give them standard IQ measures, the young people crush the old people. Why? Because almost all the problems on a standard IQ uh, 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 test are well-defined problems, like, you know, like mathematical problems, you know, uh, a pattern completion where one of the answers is available and you have to choose it. These are all well-defined problems. Um, so old people... You know, they, they, they don't do very well because the young people get the answers faster. Well, why? Uh, well, the, young, the older people are more, the, the, the negative view is, well, they're more distracted. And, and so, you know, let's put the old people away. They're distracted. We can get to the bottom line. We're younger. We're fast. You are. You're younger. You're fast. And for well-defined problems, you outperform. But Lynn Hatcher did some work, and she's even got a thing called Older Brains Are Wiser Brains. It's in the title, right? Who? Yeah, Lynn Hatcher uh, at U of T. Uh, University of Toronto. And so what happens with, uh, you can give people, there's all kinds of ways of establishing this empirically. What happens with older people, for example, when they're reading a text, they will keep more of the possible meanings of a term active than young people. So that looks like if the point is to get through, the older people are distracted. And if you, if you give them a well-defined problem, they're over here and the young people are zeroing on, on the, the correct answer that's there's to be found. But what if you switched an ill-defined problem, an ill-defined problem which we don't know, you know, what all we don't know what the important representation of our initial state is, the goal state. What are the relevant operations? What are the relevant patterns to pay attention to? Now, when you do that, older brains outcompete younger brains because they keep more options alive, which makes them better at dealing with the multivariate dynamics of situations like messy, emotionally laden interpersonal situations, which are, by the way, prototypical situations where we look for people's wisdom. So I'm not claiming, Bernardo's right, that there's no simple correlation, old age wisdom, but 
right? We are ignore we, we ignore the potential for being more wise within our poor old people because we have this seriously algorithmic notion of what intelligence is that blocks us from seeing this defect as something that actually affords wise response to ill-defined problems. Now, I think that, that, and I think that gives a lot of teeth about what Bernardo's saying about losing nuance, losing nuance. I think for me, it's, and so the, 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 I mean, there's a lot here about propositional tyranny and that, but I think what, I, I like to put this within the Frommian perspective, that I think we have confused the having of propositions with the becoming of wise, the becoming of mature. Uh, so Fromm famously, he's an existential psychologist, he divided human motivations up into two broad camps. There's uh, the having needs. These are needs by, met by having something, having water, having oxygen, having food. And it's very important that we be able to categorize that, manipulate those objects, secure control over them. We have what Buber would call an ayat relationship to them. And there's nothing wrong with that. If you don't have an ayat relationship with water, if you treated water as an important individual that you shouldn't trespass on for moral reasons, you're going to die, right? So you need to have that. Then he said there is what he called the being mode. I'm not quite happy with that term. But what he meant is that there are needs that are met by becoming being. Like, I have a need to become mature. So these are developmental needs. And these are needs that are not met by categorically uh, uh, manipulating things. They, these are needs uh, that are met by the project, uh, the Viktor Frankl type project of meaning making. Uh, because what I'm doing with you know, becoming mature is I'm trying to construct an identity that is responsible to the meanings in the world. Neither one of these is good or bad. But what Fromm argued is we get into modal confusion. We, conf- we try to satisfy being needs within the having mode. So then instead of becoming mature, I buy a car. Instead of being in love, notice we even use this word, I have a lot of sex. And the point is, we're not satisfying the developmental needs because again, my point, we're not going through any significant transformation. We're just acquiring stuff. And we do this epistemically. We acquire propositions as opposed to going through fundamental transformations. So we're locked in modal confusion. And so we spin this faster and faster because it doesn't meet the needs. And what we're told by our culture is you, you, because you need more and you need it more, more frequently and more often. And so we spin faster and faster and faster as our being needs astrophy and we fall into addictions around our having needs. And I think that's not just, you know, in you know, the, the marketplace of mercantile products. I think it's in the epistemic marketplace. We are doing the same thing. We are confusing the having of propositions with the transformation that's required to become wise and virtuous. Okay, you said many well, interesting this, points. This is uh, <laughs> this is being fantastic, uh, John. What you just mentioned reminds me of addiction and the reciprocal narrowing. Yeah. At one point, I would like you to talk about love, which is the opposite of that reciprocal opening, or some yeah. positive feedback yeah. effect there. And the reason why is because in many religions, there's a God is tantamount to love, and in Bernardo's view, many people would see mind at large as synonymous with God, which means there may be some relationship there that I'd like you all to explore. Well, and I mean, and this goes from uh, one of, I have a couple of slogans on my, uh, in my, in my signature in Gmail. And one of them is love is it's, it, it, it's a, it's a classical slogan from Christian Neoplatonism. Love is its own kind of knowing. 
Um, and, and let me, uh, and I'll try and work towards that uh, in an important sake. So it, it's not just that God is love; it's that um, love is a kind of knowing. And, and you know, uh, you know, and uh, John in the epistles, you know, says God is agape, right? And and he's trying to he's trying to bring both of those sides together. Um, I, I think there are similar things in Sikh, Sikh, uh, uh, not Sikhism, Sufism. Because uh, it's basically an integration of agopic kind of love with Neoplatonism, but but so I'm just trying to make clear that I'm not making an exclusivity imperialistic claim on Christianity's behalf. Neither sure, am sure, I sure. neither am I dismissing it, dismissing it. But I think we should we do well to pay attention to that tradition because I think of Jesus as the sage of agape. Uh, I think um, that's a, a way of trying to understand him. Um, I think there's similar ideas in the Buddha with Karuna. And you want to talk about Jesus and the Buddha? Maybe we can do that also. Yeah, we will. We will. Either way, go through the explication on love. So the idea this came to me, uh, right? There was a bunch of pieces, but I have I have the great good fortune to be uh, friends and colleagues with Mark Lewis, who's one of the premier neuroscientists um, uh, and cognitive scientists doing work on addiction. Right? And he's doing it. He did it also from the inside because he was also himself an addict, and you're always an addict in in some sense. Uh, so if you want to read the autobiography, you can read Memoirs of an Addicted Brain. Um, uh, and he, part of the reason why he went into neuroscience was to, uh, it was to, uh, to understand addiction. I have a, a, a friend of mine who said, people go into psychology to, to study their defects. Um, and since mine is relevance realization, again, that, I guess I'm worried about being irrelevant. Uh, but the, the point is that... Um, are you being facetious or are you being honest? <laughs> Both. <laughs> My intent was uh, there, there's there's some truth to it, uh, but hopefully there's also some humor in it. Um, so, um, what's what's Mark's model? Uh, you know, Mark was you know one of the first people to propose a dynamical system interpretation of emotions. He, he's a forerunner in a lot of ways. He's also you know he's also a gifted therapist. He, he's he's kind of polymath um, in this important way. Um, and so I, I was also, I was at a conference and it was not just him, but a, a bunch of psychologists and neuroscientists where like, it was, a, it was, you know, a mini, it was a symposium within the conference on basically challenging the disease model of addiction. And the disease model of addiction is the idea that, you know, you ingest the substance and it's like a disease in you and we have to get rid of the disease. Um, and, and, and that aligns with a lot of sort of governmental policies and the way governments like to deal with things, um, even though the evidence that prohibition is a completely failed strategy with dealing with addiction. Um, so uh, what they, and it doesn't account for the data well. So you, you have weird phenomena like this. You have um, Vietnam soldiers using opiates in Vietnam. Opiates, opioid crisis, right? And then they come back to the United States and without any therapy or anything else, the vast majority of them stop using. They're in highly stressful situations. They're taking opioids to escape trauma, that should, they should, they're, they're ingesting this substance that's inherently addictive, they come back and they don't. That's just one among many facts, empirical facts. It's like the disease model isn't fitting well. They, I have this substance, it infects me and it compels me. So instead, Mark proposes a learning model of addiction. And it goes like, and he calls it reciprocal narrowing. It goes like this. So I'll use alcohol just because I can presume that most people are familiar with that, that, that intoxicant. Um, so I face some stressful situations. So I drink some alcohol to reduce the stress. The problem with that is it reduces my cognitive flexibility, 
makes me much more susceptible to impulsivity, hyperbolic discounting. It basically shrinks. Now, what happens there is my world, my world, I don't mean physically, but the options available to me in my world shrink. Now, that means that my problems become more exigent and pressing on me, right? And, I, and I've lost the ability to manipulate and, and, and get to alternatives. So now I'm more stressed. So I'm going to drink more alcohol and I'm going to reduce my cognitive flexibility anymore, even more. And then the world's going to shrink down and then I'm going to shrink down. And I, I use this idea from uh, you know, Clifford Geertz about an agent arena relationship. We, we, our agency is always co-defined by uh, the, how we turn the world into an arena for action. And the arena is always co-defined with the type of agency we're assuming. And so what happens is your agency is shrinking and the world's optionality is shrinking until the world can't be any other than it is right now, and you can't be any other than you are right now, and that's when you're addicted. That's addiction. And this fits the data way, way better. But governments don't like this because it, the kind of changes you have to bring aren't changes where you can simply prohibit a substance. Uh, because, uh, right? So what I was having, literally having lunch with Mark, you know, and I've done a lot of work on Plato and the Plato, Platonic notion of anagoge. Uh, and I said to Mark, I said, but if there's reciprocal narrowing, isn't there reciprocal opening? And he went like that. <laughs> he was like, yes, like, of course, there has to be. And then I, I thought about this, and, and this is clearly what Plato advocates for. And you can see it very clearly in the Republic. You know, I get, I bring about a sort of intrapsychic harmony, and that reduces my impulsivity, my self-deception. I see more real patterns in the world. I then get better at detecting real patterns. I internalize that and right, I, I better afford my inner justice. And then that allows me to connect better. And so I reciprocally open. And Plato, I think, rightly describes that as love. Now, he thinks of it as eros, but Socratic eros is very different than our meaning of eros. I'll put that aside. Let's just say it's love for now. Well, why might that be the case? Well, if you look at the work of Aaron, that's a last name, not a first name. How do you get people to sort of fall in love with each other? You get them to do mutually accelerating disclosure. You get them to be on theolocutions. Yeah, sort of. So what, what it is, is I, if I open up a bit about me and you reciprocate by opening up about, a bit about me, first of all, I start to see you better and you start to see me better. So we're doing mindsight resonance. And that allows me to, better, not only can I open up more, I can open up better. Because I can open up more, but I have a better sense of how you're seeing things because you've opened up to me. So I start to open up more and better. And then you reciprocate by opening up more and better. And we do this. We reciprocally open. And that's what pe that will make people fall in love. Now, not necessarily erotic love. It can be philiac love. It can be agopic, right? But that reciprocal opening, we, we know it as love. It is a way of knowing by which we bind ourselves to Right, We bind our being needs to another being and we reciprocally go through transformation and open up to each other. And I think we can fall in love. This is, I think, a platonic claim that we should think about taking seriously again. We can fall in love with reality. We can fall in love with the world in a profound way. Um, and I think part of the meaning crisis is getting people so they can fall in love again with reality and with the depths of reality. Um, and so... The reciprocal opening and the love and the anagoge, I think, all converge in sort of a coherent manner. Um, and I think reciprocal opening is also what's happening in therapy. That's people come in with the propositional knowledge of what needs to change. It does almost shit. So it does almost nothing for them. 
what, the, what a good therapist does is take them through a process of reciprocal opening until they get to be a different person living in a different kind of world that is now viable to them. They want to be that person over there living in that world, but they don't know how to get there because they don't have the religious and wisdom traditions that afford people the serious play, the developmental play in reciprocal opening that affords that kind of transformation. So I hope that answered your question. You're watching this channel because you're interested in theoretical physics, consciousness, and the ostensible connection between the two. What's required to follow some of these arguments is facility with mathematics as well as discernment of the underlying physical laws. And you may think that this is beyond you, but that's false. Brilliant provides pellucid explanations of abstruse phenomena such as quantum computing, general relativity, and even group theory. When you hear that the standard model is based on U1 cross SU2 cross SU3, that's group theory, for example. Now, this isn't just for neophytes either. For example, I have a degree in math and physics, and I still found some of the intuitions given in these lessons to vastly aid my penetration into these subjects. For example, electricity and magnetism. Sign up today at brilliant.org slash toe, that is T-O-E, for free. You'll also get 20% off the annual premium subscription. Try four of the lessons at least. Don't stop before four. And I think you'll be greatly surprised at the ease at which you comprehend subjects you previously had trouble grokking. Links are in the description. This notion of reciprocal opening, so that's agape, that's love, is synonymous in many religions, especially Christianity, with God in terms of John mentioned in John's epistle. And your theory has mind at large, which is similar to God. So is there any link between reciprocal opening and mind at large? And then we're going to get to religion without a religion, or what do, what do we do to solve our current meaning crisis? Well, let me start by saying what John just said makes all kinds of sense to me from a, a first-person experience uh, perspective. This idea of love as this reciprocal opening, as becoming more than you thought you were in that dance of love, it makes all kinds of sense to me. And I think it's a beautiful way to visualize it and communicate it. Um, it's a very hard act to follow <laughs> uh, <laughs> after, uh, after that. Um, so uh, I will make a comment, uh, Kurt, on your question, but restricted to a point I think is important too, um, not meant as a complete answer. I, ca I can't follow uh, what we've just uh, had it, and, and I'm completely in peace for not being able to follow what we've just seen. Um, but I'll make a comment that I think is, is important. Um, would love be part of mind at large? Surely, love is clearly a part of nature. It's a kind of a force that binds things together. Uh, maybe the correlate of love on the screen of perception is gravity. Uh, but we also know that the universe's expansion is accelerating. So there is this other thing we call dark energy right now, which seems to have the opposite effect. Um, to deny that uh, what we call evil is also part of nature uh, would be naive, I think. And I think it's not only naive, it's dangerous because it has led to a, a sort of a, an extreme attempt to spiritualize reality. And I use, I'm going to use the words spirit and soul, not in the religious sense, but in the psychological sense. So spirit is sky, uh, uh, air, um, sunlight, abstractions, 
single-sidedness, sumum bonum, the sumum bonum of, of the New Testament, the pure good, that spirit, this, this flights of abstraction and spiritualization. Um, and soul is on the other end. Soul is earthly, it's moist, it's dark, it's where the roots suck their life energy from. It's Hades, uh, the, the mythical hell, but also the place where the goddess of spring emerges from every year to, to renew life. So this is all soul, it's you know, the, the, the ground of reality, and it's morally ambiguous. Uh, it's, a, it's a place where that psychologists know that uh, there comes insight and profound deception. Um, uh, good and evil. It's where uh, the human shadow uh, uh, resides. Um, and we have this tendency, probably started already uh, with Christianity, because you know the God of the Old Testament was morally very ambiguous, yeah, yeah, very a much. tribal God, very morally yeah. ambiguous. And with the New Testament, God was pure good. And uh, to this day, our culture seems to have this notion that uh, we have to go always only towards spirit, this single-sidedness of light and goodness and abstraction and, 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 and lightness, not only light, but lightness, this, this airy floating quality of spirit. Um, and what happens is that because this has become our ideal, we close our eyes to the soul side of ourselves, to, to our shadows, to, to the earthly, to the dark, moist, womb-like, cave-like aspect of ourselves, which is the place in nature that is pregnant with all potentialities, all unrealized potentials, and where growth ultimately comes from, where the energy of the spring uh, uh, comes from, the energy of transformation. There is a kind of self-honesty that is required to be in contact with that soul side of life. And we have a culture that does its best to eliminate it from existence, to deny it, to become completely single-sided. And then what happens, and that's the dangerous thing, what do you do with a part of yourself that is intrinsic to you, but which you do not recognize? Mm -hmm. You project it. Mm -hmm. So uh, where does the evil go? It goes to the criminals in prison. It goes to the Palestinians in the West, in, in Gaza, or the Israelis across the world, depending on which side you are. It goes to the Jews during the second, uh, uh, well, the time preceding the Second World War since the late 19th century. Uh, you project that, and the moment you project it, that's when you get into conflict. That's where war comes from. That's where civil unrest comes from. That's where all the crap, all the shit that, that's happening comes from. Um, and that's why we become unable to deal with it with maturity. It's because we've become unable to see that in ourselves, to empathize with that, and therefore have a subtle, nuanced approach to how we deal with it, a mature approach to how we deal with the dark side, how we deal with the evil forces. Uh, we are totally innocent about how to deal with it because we are so focused on love as opposed to to the dark energy. We are so focused on air and clouds and light and abstraction as opposed to the humid, dark, earthly ground of our being where we are rooted. And this lack of sophistication, this lack of self-awareness uh, is what makes it impossible for us to have empathy and to understand the other side. And if you cannot understand the other side, you don't need to agree, you don't need to give it free reign, that's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying let's give free reign to the shadow side. No, 
But if you don't want to give free reign to the shadow side, you, you have to know it. You have to know what it is. You have to know what it's doing. But if you repress and deny it, you don't see what it's doing. And that's when it gets free reign. <laughs> you see, it gets free reign precisely by being ignored, by not being legitimized, by our not giving it, not, not telling it the following words. I see you. I recognize your right to exist within me but I shall not give you free reign. Our inability to do that is what sets off this madhouse that, that we are seeing right now. It's right, right now popping up uh, in the Middle East, but it's always popping up somewhere. So that's what I wanted to say. Every time we talk about love, and now I'll link back to your question finally, every time we talk about love and we want to say, well, mind at large is love, it's God, it's the sumum bonum. It's all true, but it's half of the truth. Uh, and ignoring, denying the right of the other half to exist, to be there, is immature and, and dangerous. Hear that sound? That's the sweet sound of success with Shopify. Shopify is the all-encompassing commerce platform that's with you from the first flicker of an idea to the moment you realize you're running a global enterprise. Whether it's handcrafted jewelry or high-tech gadgets, Shopify supports you at every point of sale, both online and in person. They streamline the process with the internet's best converting checkout, making it 36% more effective than other leading platforms. There's also something called Shopify Magic, your AI-powered assistant that's like an all-star team member working tirelessly behind the scenes. What I find fascinating about Shopify is how it scales with your ambition. No matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Join the ranks of businesses in 175 countries that have made Shopify the backbone of their commerce. Shopify, by the way, powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, including huge names like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. If you ever need help, their award-winning support is like having a mentor that's just a click away. Now, are you ready to start your own success story? Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theories, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theories now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in, shopify.com slash theories. So with the same conviction that I would say, yes, love is mind at large. It is God. I would also say, and so is the energy that expressed itself through Hitler. Uh, and, and, and it's intrinsic to nature and to humanity. I mean, your backyard is a bloodbath right now. I, yeah. I think I mentioned to you last time, you know, ants cutting up earthworms in pieces while they're wiggling alive. I mean, it's a, it's a disaster. Look at nature. Yeah. Nature is a bloodbath, what's happening. Um, and to deny it, to deny its existence, to not grant it the right to exist is a very mature very dangerous move, and today an extraordinarily unpopular move. I mean, you run the risk of being culture cancelled very swiftly if you say what I just said. <laughs> now, why do I say that? Because I don't give a damn if I'm, if I'm culture cancelled, you know. Uh, I, I don't need any more this you know, recognition from the outside. It's fine, whatever way it goes. But I think it's very dangerous. It's a degree of psychological unsophistication and immaturity that sits at the source of the evil we see in the world. Because to control the shadow, you need to grant it the right to exist and to be there. And only then can you police it. 
What does it mean to understand the shadow part of you, the evil part of you? Does it mean to, in John's words, see its point of views or goals as plausible? What does it mean? And how does one practically do it? Recognize that it exists. Recognize how it feels. Uh, uh, before you rush to judgment and you say, well, my shadow side is wrong, fine, you will get there. But first, I will speak metaphorically because there's no other way to speak about it. First, look at it and say, I see you. You exist in me. And it is okay that you exist in me. I'm not going to try to weed you out or cut off your head. I'm not going to deny your right to be. You are there. It's all right. However, I have a different point of view. I am metacognitive. I can process things in a way that you cannot, and I will not give you free reign. Now, you may even, to the degree that is safe and conducive to health and harmony, you may even throw some breadcrumbs to it every now and then. Uh, indulge your shadow side in a safe, controlled way. So it can also express itself as part of nature. Because if you shut the door on it and you say, not only do I not see you, I don't grant you the right to exist. I don't even recognize that you exist. That's where it's going to undermine you from the ground up, from the roots up. Uh, if you go all towards the sun and you forget where you were rooted, you know, you will be able to do photosynthesis, but you will not have the minerals and the water that sustain your life. Trees are a great metaphor for this. They need the sun, they need the spirit, but they are rooted in soul. They are rooted in the darkness, moist realm of uh, a moral ambiguity uh, where the shadow is. So I, I think for lacking this degree of sophistication, not only lacking it, but elevating it as a positive cultural value. To lack that sophistication is extraordinarily dangerous because it's, it decreases the end of empathy. It turns the world into a dance of projections that have very little to do with reality. There is more in common between me and my enemy than the Bernardo, who was 30 years old, would ever dare contemplate as possible. And the moment you see this, you may think, well, I don't want to get to that realization because I will hate myself. No, you will not, uh, because that comes with a, a degree of kindness and acceptance towards yourself that you, you wouldn't be capable of uh, 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 before. And that same kindness then just gets extended to the world at large. That ability, to, and I think old people have this ability. They've gone through enough shit that they know that things are never quite black and white. That behind that evil, there is something you share. Uh, you, you see, to understand something doesn't mean that you need to agree. To understand an evil act doesn't mean that you condone it. But we've come to associate understanding with approval. Yeah. We conflate these two things. And this is, this, is a, this is a disaster. Look, I don't need to approve of what the SS did to understand what Austrians from Austrian villages, uh, 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 what motivated them to join the SS. I can understand that. And I do understand that. Do I condone it? Do I approve of it? Absolutely not. But that doesn't mean that I shouldn't make an effort to understand, that I shouldn't make an effort to empathize in some way, because it's only through that understanding and empathy that we will solve our problems, that we will solve our conflicts. There's a lot I want to say in response to that. Uh, first of all, uh, 
Uh, yeah, I I, I I I agree with that critique uh, of, of sort of of, of pure uh, pure airy spirituality. I try to make the case that the very you know the very same processes that were that make us adaptively intelligent also make us per- permanently susceptible to self deception. That you can't extricate one from another. The heuristics that allow us to avoid combinatorial explosion are the same heuristics that bias us and prejudice and try to separate and try to somehow get the one without the other is is it's a farcical uh, endeavor it's it's a futile endeavor and now it doesn't mean we can't ameliorate the way bernardo was saying but trying to get some sort of ontological separation um i i I think that's a, a fundamental misunderstanding about how intelligence and adaptivity and meaning making work um you're uh and so the, what I'm proposing now is much more like the Buddhist perspective. You know, realize that everything is threatened by dukkha. Realize that everything you do, every domain can, you can, within, no matter what domain you're in, you can fall prey to self-deceptive, self-destructive behavior, because that's what dukkha is. And that's one of the noble truths. And I, I, I so I, I think that actually lines up uh, with how we're increasingly understanding the functionality of, of, of cognition. Second uh, uh, riff point, and these are all, all related, I see uh, there's another point where I'm maybe now a little bit closer because I see uh, uh, Bernardo's mind at large much more like the Tao than like God. Um, I'm a I'm a I'm a Tai Chi player. I have been for you know three decades, um, and so uh, this is not just something I, I think about propositionally. I mean, in fact, you don't really know the you don't know the Tao until you're doing the Tao. You can't just like read about it. Um, and the idea, you know, that the Tao is disclosed between, you know, you all know the famous yin-yang and people don't, and notice that there's the little dot of black within the white and white within the black and the line between them is sinewy and there's a dynamic interpenetration and inter-co-creation between the yang, which is the expansive airy, and and the yin, which is the earthy grounding. Uh, And so, uh, if you know, if minded large is more like the Tao, that, that, that um, uh, and, and that our primary relationship is to it is one of ongoing maturation. So you do Tai Chi in order to become more mature in your capacity to deal with the yin and the yang, and you hope that it percolates through your psyche and permeates through your life, um, and that's what you're actually, uh, and that's how to love it. Uh, so I, I, I mean. The, uh, I, I would suggest that there that there's a way of there is and Bernardo expressed it, there's a kind of love that is not trying to exclude the shadow. Uh, there's that there's there there is even the reciprocal opening to the shadow. And I want to point out something else. This is right out of the Neoplatonic tradition. Now Bernardo was speaking, and perhaps he was speaking metaphorically, but I practice and I'm involved in like IFS and other things like that emotion-focused therapy, in which you don't just sort of describe it to yourself. You actually enact these inner dialogues. You actually go into an imaginative space. You'll have a part come up. And instead of trying to exclude it, you try and mature it. You try and, first of all, appreciate its adaptive functionality and then get it to realize that that functionality is now maladaptive and it needs to grow. And and this is, you know, this is why IFS, Mark Lewis, by the way, recommends, can yeah. you give a specific example? Sure. So internal family systems therapy is, um, I, uh, I'll try not to spill my own guts too much on this. Uh, but um, so I have uh, a part of me that when uh, sort of feels threatened 
by overwhelming experience. It's, it's, it's kind of like it wants to smash. It sort of smashes things. Um, it wants to sort of, you know, just disrupt whatever is happening now so that the, 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 this, this situation cannot un- unfold anymore. Um, and so you sort of, well, well, what's that for? And then you try to appreciate, oh, well, that ability to smash things, that's adaptive. Um, when properly, you know, aligned, it allows me to criticize and, and escape from oppressive things that are trying to hold me back. And so you get into dialogue with this part and you try to say, well, you're just smashing everything. Do you need to smash everything all the time? And first of all, it says, yes, because if I don't, you're going to get overwhelmed. And then you say, but, but can you step back? Can you sort of become aware of me, right? As Bernardo said, the, the metacognitive me and this wider scope. And you see all the skills that are available to us now. It's like the Tai Chi. I've developed a finesse. I don't just have to smash things. We can carry out that function, but could we do it more like a martial artist? So I even offer my part when it starts to run. I said, hey, why don't we just sort of do almost enact Tai Chi internally? And it starts to get into a different framing and it starts to think, oh, wait, I can discharge this function, but in more sort of finesse interaction rather than just going in and smashing it. And then what happens is, the, the, the wanton, impulsive aspect of this uh, that's confusing urgency and, intes- and intensity with legitimacy, it starts to become less confused. It starts to realize, oh, wait, I can meet the goal. First of all, the goal doesn't have to be met the way I thought it has to be met. And I can meet the goal by you know, doing this other thing. And, and it's a process of, of basically internal dialogue. Sometimes you're imagining the part and you're talking to it. Sometimes it's more like, like a direct just intuition. Sometimes you get imagery that comes up, but you learn. It's a, it's a skill. You learn to uh, enter into dialogue with this. It's very similar to something that's convergent in EFT, motion focus therapy, the em- empty chair technique, which is you, have, you, you feel an inner conflict. And what you do is you move between the chairs and you'll have this part. Go to that part, take its perspective, take its identity, say what it wants to say. Now go to this other part, Take its perspective, as I, and, you, and I've done this. I've done emotion-focused therapy with Les Greenberg and stuff like that. And what happens is the two parts start talking to each other. They start realizing that they're there. I don't want to be too anthropomorphic. But what happens, the point I'm making is this. There's, what's happening is a revolution right now within the psychotherapeutic world of all these independent lines of convergence on inner dialogue being an effective thing. Now, one of the, one of the things that's helped is the Jungian version of this was too tied to visual imagery, speaking therapeutically. And there's a wide variation, including no capacity for visual imagery in the populace. We have at least 5 to 10% of the people that can't do visual imagery. So active imagination is not available to them. So what's happened is people have tried to say, well, can we, can we, can we save the baby from the, the bathwater? And can we get other forms? And they've moved into more discourse, dialogic, uh, ways of carrying on these inner dialogues, um, and uh, there's it's sort of they're sort of gaining a lot of traction uh, within the psychotherapeutic world, and I find that very interesting uh, because for me that's just a Neoplatonic tradition brought back uh, because it's very clear that with things like theurgia, the Neoplatonists were doing this inner kind of dialectic dialogue, and then they were doing it between each other in philosophia. And then they were doing it contemplatively with reality and they were coordinating these three together. And we're, I feel like, and this is just an intuition, so don't give it too much, but I feel what these different fields are starting, started all starting to converge towards each other to potentially give us uh, a set of abilities that would give us a a very powerful kind of way uh, of, uh, notice what Bernardo was doing where 
we're going through a transformation so that we can realize, not just in thought, but in our being, some fundamental patterns within ontology. But I do think that all of that is also still a kind of love. But again, not the spiritualized, airy. It, it's, it's the ability, like you say, there's a love, right? It's, it's like what Plato talks about in, you know, in, when he compares philia sophia to philia nokia. I'm not trying to destroy the shadow. I'm also not condoning it. I'm trying to understand. I'm trying to open it up and open myself up to it in the right way. Um, at least that's how I understand it. And I don't know if that's consonant with everything you're saying, Bernardo, but those are some of the riffs I wanted to get on. I'm very excited about all of this happening right now because it, 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 like, I, I, I participate a lot in these emerging communities of interpersonal dialogue. And man, do they become religious for people almost automatically. I'm very much, like I said, really trying to understand the dialectic uh, uh, within ontology. I, I think, by the way, that that separation from soul and spirit is again we, we we get both in our culture we get we get you know just a sort of giving in to raw emergence a, a kind of you know which is uh, you know to 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 to, to 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 take the soil but not try to grow from it right <laughs> and, and then you and then you have the you have like the the, the the tree just receptive to the sunlight of emanation and you know and even plato was critical of that he said no no look at the sun and then go back down into the cave because if you don't go back into the cave you haven't really understood the sun Right, you you didn't you didn't get it. You didn't get it, right? And so I, I I'm really trying to bring all these things together in my work. So I was just I'm sorry, it's not a counter argument. I'm just expressing sort of convergence <laughs> and excitement with what 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 you were talking about. Um, and, and it's very interesting to me that the I see these symptoms as positive symptoms rather than the generation of Ertzatz religions to the meaning crisis. So I'm interested how, I agree with Bernardo, you see all of this stuff, the Kurtz violin and all this uh, crap going on over here, but there's also this stuff going on over here. And that, that, that's what I place my, my, I place my dollar of hope, that's my bet, is on these emerging uh, communities of practice and how they're also converging uh, with each other. Sorry, that was a lot, but that was, I, just, I was just really inspired by what Bernardo had to say. To speak personally, I I try to go by this screenwriting adage, which says that the more personal the pain, the more general. So if you try to speak in platitudes, no one relates. But if you're more honest, then people tend to relate. I I get this distinct feeling that I don't love myself, and I I'm unsure how to do shadow integration with one particular aspect of myself that I'll say. Now there's probably twenty, but one is laziness. So I, I work hard, 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 hard. And I feel like, so well, one, I, I need to work hard because to prep for some of these podcasts requires quite a bit of work. But every minute, almost every minute that I spend that I'm not working, I'm unconsciously beating myself up, saying that I'm wasting time, I'm wasting time, I need to get back to work. And when I'm spending time with my wife, which I love, that's like all I love to do is work and to spend time with my wife. If I'm honest, when I'm spending time with my wife, I'm thinking, why aren't I working right now? And I, so I, I have a feeling that comes from me not loving myself. Do you me, think, what, what interjection? What, do you do, 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 do you do the opposite? When you're working, do you think, why am I not spending time with my sometimes, wife? Sometimes, sometimes. Oh, but I would say it happens more often. Oh, okay. But it, it does happen that I, 
when I'm working, I'm, I, I'm always looking forward to spending time with my wife. I, I actually, I'm so happy that the two aspects of my life that I get to do almost 100% of the time is work intensely and spend time with my wife intensely. And when I'm spending time with my wife, I'm not working. It's like watching a movie, going for a walk and so on. But what Either a, way, what a, I'm trying to point out something to you. Uh, very frequently, and this goes back to what I said a, a few minutes ago, very frequently, the reason why we can't integrate with something is because of aspect disguise. Let's first give, uh, I'll give a, a, a description that's not pertinent to your case, and then let's try and apply it here. So somebody will come into therapy and they'll say, why are you here? And they'll say, I'm stubborn. Like, I'm stubborn. I, I'm, I'm inflexible. And, and, and you don't tackle that directly. You talk to them for a while and you get them off somewhere and you say, tell me something you really like about yourself. And they'll say, I'm perseverance. I really keep going. And they don't realize that those are two different aspects of the same function. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to get you to realize if your laziness is also the positive function of taking you into relationship with your wife, then you can see that it's not just a drag on your work. There's also a positive aspect to it. And you've got to, you've got to get off. Uh, you've got to, you've got to bring the two aspects back together. If you're go- if they're disintegrated from each other, you can't integrate with them. They have to come back together before, because you can't properly appreciate in all the meanings of the word appreciate that reality and that function and, and integrate with it unless it has been properly reintegrated back together. You leave it like this and you try to integrate with this and this is going to kick you in the ass. Or you try to integrate with this and this is going to pull you into, right? And if you don't put them back together, you can't integrate with it. That's what I'm trying to get you to see. Is your laziness also the thing, maybe that's also, hey, I want to connect with my wife. I want to do, there are things other than my work that are important. That was just a suggestion. I mean, you need to do therapy to do, do this, but I'm trying to get you to see like that, like it, it, you have, it's, it, it, like it's a, Bernardo, it's a much more nuanced thing. Part of the problem with the, the current discourse around shadow integration is it's very simplistic. It's almost like there's a the black figure there. And what I'm going to do is just sort of bind yeah. him, right? And, and that, <laughs> exactly. That is not helpful. That is not therapeutically helpful. And, and, and that failure to deal with aspect disguise is what blocks people. Uh, and, and one of the things about IFS and other therapies is they're trying, to get, they're trying to get people to see both aspects of any function. Sorry, I was just trying to be helpful there. Um, th- you definitely are. And Bernardo, one time he told me that I take myself too seriously, and I do. And it's, I try to not, I think I've taken myself less seriously since you've told me that, but not drastically. <laughs> It's difficult for me because I'm in in many ways I'm extremely insecure. I don't feel like I know anywhere near as much as I need to know when I look at what I have to learn, not just for these podcasts, but what I would like to learn for my life. These theories of everything's two hundred of them. Man, I know one percent of what I should know. And I'm constantly beating myself up like I should be farther along. I felt like I wasted five to eight years of my life in depression and I am so far behind where I should be. And I look at other people and think at how much and admire how much they know. And then it pushes me to go even harder. But sometimes it exhausts me. And I have a feeling that this and a lack of shadow integration is, and well, many other aspects are the reason why I feel the way that I feel. And well, well, that I'll just say that. Well, you sound like Socrates. <laughs> um, but, but I'm, try, I'm trying to be both funny I'm trying to be a little bit therapeutic here I'm trying to be funny because mm-hmm. humor gets around defenses but I'm also trying to challenge you I'm trying to say well you know no, really knowing that you don't know is, is first of all that's, that's the Socratic 
That's the central Socratic insight because only, and not, not knowing it the way you know two plus two equals four, but like, you know, Ivan Illich knew he was going to die, right? Knowing that is the thing that grounds and makes possible Socratic humility. It makes possible wonder and wisdom begins in wonder. Uh, so the gift you have out of this, the positive aspect of not knowing is your capacity to find this wondrous and to find it that it calls to you and calls you beyond yourself. If you knew all of this, you'd be static and dead. But you are capable of awe and wonder precisely because you recognize that you don't know and you know it and you take it seriously. But that's, again, I'm trying to get you to see, right? You have to put the two aspects together. yes. There's times when I feel that too, you know, uh, like, you know, I, I wish I was as well-read as that person. Or I wish I was as mature as that person and you can get down. But then I realize, but the part of me that's making me down, I can, I can, I can aspect shift it. And it, that's the part of me that can be transformed. As, oh, I don't know. And that's good because not knowing makes me responsive to other people, makes me capable, makes me responsive to the world, makes me capable of falling in love with other people and falling in love with the world. Because if I can't find them wondrous, I'm not going to fall in love with them. Yeah, I will speak out of my own experience and intuition. It, it's not an area where I have expertise, unlike John. So I, I will speak as if what I'm saying were facts, but it's just how I see it, okay? It's, grammatically, it's easier to just make statements and not keep on adding disclaimers all the time. So what I think is this, you will always try to get out of this situation through a paradigm of victory. So you will achieve victory in some kind of conceptual wrestling match against yourself. Um, but you will get out of this, in fact, through a completely different paradigm, a paradigm of surrender to what you are, to what is the case about you. Now, this may sound as bad news, but it's not, because that surrender, when it's authentic, uh, it comes hand in hand with a lot of loving kindness and acceptance towards yourself, uh, the, the, the judgments you pass uh, on yourself, sort of dissipate, not because they are resolved by choice, but because those values are seen through. It's like Nietzsche's uh, transvaluation of all values. So it's not like uh, one side of the equation will achieve victory, it's the very fight will be seen through. And, and that seeing through has the quality of a kind of an exhalation, a surrender with a lot of comprehension, understanding, and loving kindness towards yourself, uh, which sort of transcends those, those paradigmatic, paradigmatic values of what you should be as opposed to what you think you are, and how you should behave as opposed to how you think you behave. You come to a place where you are what you are. You're lazy, that's okay. Laziness is part of you. It doesn't need to be judged constantly. Um, it may surprise you because of what people perceive as my production. I'm an extraordinarily lazy person. Uh, uh, but I stopped fighting my laziness. I, I, I kid you not, this is factually true. I am a very lazy person. Today, for instance, I had a whole lot of things to do. But I gave me the excuse that I had a long debate at six. 
So I did absolutely nothing today. The <laughs> difference between you and me is that, although I, I used to be very much like you, I'm not saying that I'm ahead of you, I'm in a different place. The place where I am now is, okay, I've been very lazy today. <laughs> it's fine. It's just the truth of the moment. It's what happened at that point in time. I'm not going to you know, drive myself nuts by judging myself. Uh, um, there was a time I caused myself tremendous agony. I made a 30-second stupid mistake. I tried to remove a siren from an alarm system in my house, knowing that it was not deactivated, knowing full well it had a safety mode and it would go off. Uh, but I thought, well, it goes off, I only need 10 seconds to pull the batteries out, it's okay. Well, it went off and gave me terrible tinnitus. I have tinnitus in both ears that sound like a dentist's drill at three meters distance, day and night. And it has driven me to the point of planning my suicide twice uh, uh, for 30 minutes or so. Now, I went nuts against myself when that happened. You know, I look at the mirror and I, you were so bloody stupid. You know that was going to happen. Look at what you did, you asshole. That dissipated too. It doesn't come as a victory. It's it's like a, you transit into another way of being that you don't achieve. You don't secure through a paradigm of conflict and fight. You sort of just allow yourself to slide into it. It's very hard to describe, but um, the good news is there is there is a place of peace that is almost inevitable to arrive at, even if you arrive at it 30 seconds before you die and you are already in your deathbed. Usually people are forced into that place through major life dramas, a job loss, a divorce, a death of a loved one, some, some major thing that sort of shakes the edifice of your narratives, uh, which sort of overwhelms your ego, your ability to try to be in control or to pretend that you are in control. And once that ability is taken out and you stop fighting, you sort of slide into this place of acceptance, this transvaluation of all values in which, you know, the judgment of yourself sort of goes away and you are just living in service of your diamond. And my, my diamond is not a Socratic diamond. It doesn't tell me what not to do. It tells me pretty, pretty explicitly what to do. <laughs> so <laughs> I have a particularly severe diamond and, uh, and I live in peace with this paradigm of surrender and slavery. My coat of arms has a, uh, a chain. Uh, and I added that to symbolize the fact that my life is in a wonderful condition of permanent slavery. <laughs> a slavery towards what nature wants to do through me. Um, a, a sort of complete giving up of the paradigm of control. I'm not in control. I have never been in control, by the way. And it's all right. And there is no point in judging me. Who am I to judge me? There is a form of arrogance built into self-judgment. Uh, um, what's happening is what's happening. What you are is what you are. Laziness has its place. If it becomes compulsive and addictive, then it's something else. And then John can tell us uh, uh, what happens there. But uh, this shadow side, the shadow of laziness, the shadow of anger, uh, that we try to repress, they have their moment. They have their moment of expression so long as they don't become dysfunctional. That paradigm of acceptance makes space for all that. And at some point you look back and you see, you know, my life went just like 
the way it went. <laughs> and that was nature. And it couldn't have been any other way. And the proof of it is that it was the way it was. I mean, Bernardo, you're sounding more and more like a, a, a Tai Chi player to me all the time. Uh, <laughs> uh, the, the, uh, uh, Slingerland has a good book around this entitled Trying Not to Try about how you see this ish, this thing uh, within uh, within Taoism, Buddhism, I think perhaps also within Islam, uh, properly understood its notion of surrender too, um, it, it, because what Islam literally means. Um, yeah. But, but um, yeah, this idea of, uh, and, I, and I've tried to, because uh, what you, 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 you're trying to, the, yeah, you tr- it's, it's, it's interesting because you're, you're, you're both trying and not trying. Because I mean, if I just sit on the couch, nothing, I'm not doing Tai Chi. But if, I'm, if I get up and I say, I'm going to make myself get into the flow state, that I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll never get there. So you have to do this finesse thing where you, you open yourself up, but you have to let something take shape within you. But you don't just let it impulsively. Like it's this, it's, that's why I keep using Pascal's term. Like instead of the spirit of geometry, the spirit of finesse. The, you, you, like it's a it's a it's a finessing kind of thing in which you really have to in Iris Murdoch's things you really have to give things their just attention the 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 attention that they properly deserve and figuring out the wisdom of how much attention to give something and finesse it I think that's that that's a big part of maturity and wisdom and that's what I meant by when I talked about philia Sophia rather than philia Nikea Plato consist, consistently can contrast them. You know, and he, he, the people that are lovers of wisdom, as opposed to the people that are lovers of victory, uh, even over themselves. Um, and yeah, uh, right. And so I, I just think that that was beautifully well said. Um, and uh, like, um, I, I don't know if you do anything uh, from the Taoist tradition, but you, you certainly have a sensibility that would open you up to those practices, I think, very readily. Probably. Uh... I have no background uh, in this thing, so I'm just speaking from from where I am. Uh, the quality I sense in it is the quality of tuning. It's yes. more attuning to to the flow, frequency, yep. and energy yep. of the moment, uh, without judging the energy of the moment. So, if the energy of the moment is like it was for me earlier today, laziness, sit on the on the living room and watch uh, electronics videos all afternoon. <laughs> then I tuned into that without that energy of judgment, that energy of control, trying to make it be different. Uh, but it works the other way around as well. Sometimes the energy of the moment is compulsive work. And uh, and I tuned into that too. It, it was the case a couple of days ago. So that was the energy of yeah. the moment. That's what the diamond wanted to do through me. So on we go. Let's go with it. We, we, trans, transvaluating all values. In other words, without passing the judgment, whether it's good or bad, within reason, of course. I mean, yes, of course. If I, I'm not going to surrender to the energy of anger, which happens uh, often enough, but I'm not going to give it free reign. Uh, the other day, I wanted to, to, to do something physically bad to a neighbor. <laughs> but uh, okay, there I put limits. <laughs> on that you know it got close it came until here oh no 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 you're not going to have free reign you are there i recognize you exist there is this anger inside me but i will stop you here and i will go in and i will punch a dust bag i'll give it another outlet uh, but yeah. I still, I, I, I was still in tune with it. I didn't repress that. So I, I don't know. It's, it ha- has happened natural, naturally to me after my 45th, 45th year. This sort of sliding into the energy of the moment and not fighting it, you know, giving up the illusion that I was ever in control and just 
tune in to the radio of nature <laughs> within reason because I'm a, I'm a reflective being after all. I will use yeah. my reflection to establish the limits. I know so, you both have so, to go soon. but I, I just want to respond to that, please. Yeah, sure, just, sure. There's just so much. I mean, the, 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 uh, if you heard me a minute ago, you, you're not a Tai Chi doer. You're a Tai Chi player where the verb is to playing music. And so the, the music, getting into attunement and, uh, and playing music and achieving harmony between the different tunes that you're attuning to is very much the central Taoist metaphor. Um, so I think, yeah, I think you, you might be a, a Taoist without knowing it, Bernardo, but that, that's meant in affection. Uh, Schopenhauer said that uh, the closest thing, the closest human activity to the intrinsic rhythms and characteristics of the will was music. Yeah. Yeah. The rhythm and flow, yeah. the ebb and flow of music was the clearest representation, the closest representation to the will as it is in itself, as opposed to how it presents to us uh, as representation. So that has to do with that as well, tuning yourself yeah. to, the, to the flow of nature that is expressing itself through you. Uh, and and y your only choice is you either fight that or you let it happen. So I just choose now to not fight that. I want to get to religion without a religion, but before we do that, John, what age or what moment in your life was it that precipitated you feeling more at peace or surrendering to a part of yourself that you resisted? Because right now, when I look at both of you, you're calm, you're, you seem to have a well-developed Weltan Shaung, otherwise I wouldn't have asked you onto this program. And I think I lack almost all of those. Now I'm also being a bit harsh on myself when I say that, but... I, I'm definitely not to the degree of peace that you are, you both are. And I'm, I'm curious, so John, what age or what moment, what happened to lead you to where you are now? Well, that's a different question from the question of where did I realize peace? Because I don't think peace is something I have, uh, going back to from. I think peace is something that I, like maturity, I should always be realizing. Um, I mean, this, the, I mean, this is similar to uh, the point that McGee and Barber make. That one of the surest signs that somebody isn't wise is if they say to you, I am wise. Um, <laughs> and that has nothing to do with the semantics or the syntax of the proposition, right? And I think the similar thing, you know, um, uh, I, I almost think somebody who says, that, you know, I, I'm perpetually at peace. Um, I, I, I'd, be, I'd be a little bit worried about that. They, they're, I mean, the Buddha, for example, classically warned against people who pursue meditation to get that sort of spiritually bypassed contentedness because then they're useless. They're useless for other people. They're useless uh, for trying to reduce suffering, enhancing agency, improving connectedness, meaning in life. Um, so um, I just want to say that I don't want to put it into the having mode way of understanding it. Um, what put me on the path to trying to realize peace within and peace without, if you'll allow me that, sort of the Jewish notion of shalom um, or the Plato's notion of justice, which has a lot to do with that kind of peace and harmony, uh, not with our notion today so much. Um, what put me on that path was um, a loss and an encounter. I was in a fundamentalist Christianity um, that now upon reflection uh, traumatized me I'm grateful for it, though. I've, I've learned with therapy and time to be grateful to it because it, uh, you know how you have a mother tongue language. Uh, that Christianity was my mother religion. It gave me the taste for meaning and wisdom and self-transcendence and fellowship uh, and trying to get to a deeper aspect and the sacred 
that I'm grateful for. But nevertheless, it seriously traumatized me. And then there, there was experiences that brought me out of that. Um, but, and I'm glad that that happened. But because it was my mother religion, it left a kind of hole in me, a gap. Um, and, and, and I did a lot of thrashing around and, you know, became sort of a very antagonistic atheist and, the, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but, um, and, and, and I'm not, I don't want to make it sound like there's stages. That kept going for a while, but I'm talking about sort of, of attenuation uh, on a graph. But in university, I encountered the figure of Socrates in Plato's work. Um, and it gave me an alternative way of thinking about how to cultivate wisdom, self-transcendence, fellowship, a relationship to what's sacred, moving into the depths. Um, and that, for me, um, put me on a course uh, of seeking. Now, what happens in academic philosophy, I think Bernardo will back me up until very recently, the topic of wisdom drops off the table. And you get into, you know, epistemology and metaphysics. And, you know, and I think Bernardo and I have shown that's valuable. And so I pursued it for its own sake. But the hunger for what I saw in, Spinoza, uh, in, in Socrates, and then later, as I just alluded to, in Spinoza, wasn't being met in academic philosophy. So I undertook Tai Chi, Vipassana meditation, metacontemplation practices, and I started to get a sense of the perspectival, participatory, procedural transformations of wisdom. And then, lo and behold, fourth-generation cognitive science was emerging, and people were starting in psychology to talk about wisdom before they talked about it in philosophy, by the way. And these two streams just started to, there was like a kairos in the world. The, the world was bringing these two together and I needed them to come together. And I just happened to be there at the right place and the right time for that convergence without, the convergence without and the convergence within met. And that was for me the kairos, the turning point. And that's the point from which I have not looked back. I hope that answers your question. Bernardo, what about you? I don't think there was a specific point where a major transition uh, happened. Um, I think it was a progressive sort of giving in to 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 what is. Uh, I, I still suffer from a lot of anxiety. So uh, taking my cue from John, let me uh, highlight this. I, I, I take it for granted that we all suffer. So uh, sometimes I don't emphasize this, but I don't want to come across as a as somebody spiritually enlightened because I'm anything but, and uh, and I mean it when I say it. Um, I suffer from anxiety, but uh, the difference is I don't fight with it anymore that much. Uh, when anxiety is there, anxiety is there, and before there would be multiple layers of fights and meta fights and meta meta fights against the anxiety. Should I be anxious or not? I'm wasting my time by being anxious. I don't have a reason to be anxious. So how, how do I make myself not be anxious? Oh, that thing, you know, it's mushrooms. Uh, um, that mm -hmm. didn't stop completely, uh, but it's a lot less, uh, less present. Uh, th th there is an easier sort of, okay, this is the energy of the moment. I'm anxious. Okay, I'm anxious. Um, how did that happen? Um, I think suffering has a lot to do with it. Suffering has a lot to do with insight, with becoming more mature, because it's the one thing in nature that makes you stop and reevaluate re your narratives. Um, because if you're not suffering, then you're living an Epicurean life, uh, which is 
irresistibly unexamined. Why would you stop and mm -hmm. examine it? You're having fun. You're having a ball. So there is something about suffering that is directly tied, I would say even an enabler of insight and, and maturation, because it forces you to, to stop and think, because you know, your game is not working. Something is going wrong in the game you're playing. Something is wrong in your narratives, in your values, somewhere. Something is not right. Um, and it's that consistent undermining that suffer puts you through, like water against a rock. You know, it, it, it doesn't kick the door open in one go. But over the years, it softens you, like it softens a rock. It makes you less angular, more roundish. Um, there is more nuance, more, more subtlety. A more finesse, as 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 John put it, and and less internal fight. Um, I wouldn't be able to tell you a precise moment, but uh, it happened happened through suffering, uh, for sure. Yeah, and and it and it is happening. It, it it's a verb. It's it's not a noun. It's not mm -hmm. a place you arrive at. It's a mm -hmm. path that uh, mm -hmm. that you accept to to allow nature to pursue through you. Um, and I, I say this more or less metaphorically. I don't say this in a religious sense. I'm, I'm not saying that I'm controlled or some spirit incarnated mm. in me. And I, I'm, I'm trying to convey the feeling of it through metaphor. And the feeling of it is the feeling that you are not in control. It's just that you are not fighting with the rhythm and flow of nature as it wants to go through you at that moment. Um, what I could tell you is that until I was... When I was 32, I was promoted to a director position in the company I was, I was working for, which is a major company. It was, you know, it's Europe's top 50. It's in the FTSE, uh, major, major company. If that company stopped existing today, there would be no new electronics for five to 10 years. Um, and at 33, I was director, probably the youngest at, at the company at that time. And that was the peak of my adaptive self. Um, the adaptive self is that personality that has found a way to secure a place in the world for themselves, despite all the shit that you go through, like losing my father when I was 12, and you, know, you adapt yeah. to the circumstances, and you create a way for you in the world. The adaptive self is a tool to get there, and it reached the peak when I was 32 towards 33. And it was at that moment when something happened, I thought I had found, well, I found a, a growth uh, in the person who was then my wife. I found a growth in her breast. Hear that sound? That's the sweet sound of success with Shopify. Shopify is the all-encompassing commerce platform that's with you from the first flicker of an idea to the moment you realize you're running a global enterprise. Whether it's handcrafted jewelry or high-tech gadgets, Shopify supports you at every point of sale, both online and in person. They streamline the process with the internet's best converting checkout, making it 36% more effective than other leading platforms. There's also something called Shopify Magic, your AI-powered assistant that's like an all-star team member working tirelessly behind the scenes. What I find fascinating about Shopify is how it scales with your ambition. 
No matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Join the ranks of businesses in 175 countries that have made Shopify the backbone of their commerce. Shopify, by the way, powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, including huge names like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. If you ever need help, their award-winning support is like having a mentor that's just a click away. Now, are you ready to start your own success story? Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theories, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theories now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in, shopify.com slash theories. And it took two weeks for doctors to rule out cancer. But in those two weeks, I was confronted with the reality that although my adaptive self ticked every box that it had set for itself mm -hmm. when I was 12. Like these are all the goals I achieved in my life. Although it was extraordinarily successful, at the end, I was not in control of anything and the carpet could be pulled out mm -hmm. of my feet the next moment. And it can happen now. I can get, a, I think I mentioned to you last time, I can get a phone call in the next 30 seconds that will destroy my life as I know it now. Mm -hmm. uh, so mm -hmm. that happened and that was the moment of awakening. That was the first, Oh shit, you know, uh, uh, and from that point, 33 until 43, 44, say thick 10 years, that's when this transition happened. And in, in that process, there was a lot of anxiety, a lot of inner fight. Uh, but recently it has gotten a lot better uh, for some reason. Uh, but all I can tell you is that it's an ongoing process that I didn't achieve, I slid into. And I would probably have slided into it kicking and screaming. The difference is, once I was sliding, I figured I can't stop this slide anyway. So <laughs> let's see where it goes. Bernardo, can I ask you a question? Sure. Because uh, like, one of the reasons why I've been trying to come up with this, work out this notion of participatory knowing is, again, to try and get out from uh, a purely active or a purely passive epistemic and ontologic existential stance, right? You know, the, the romantic, I just make it, the empiricist, I just receive it. And in my experience is these processes, and I, we have, you know, there's similarities. Uh, that's what I try to get at with the idea that I participate in it. I'm not just sort of passively receiving uh, and I'm not making it happen. It's again, this trying not to try. I'm, I'm trying to like, like I, I, the metaphor I, I, I use is like becoming someone's friend. I can't make it happen. I can't, you're my friend, right? I can't just sort of like, okay, be my friend, yeah. right? I, right? But, right, I have to participate in it, right? And, 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 and so I'm trying to not, I'm not, I'm not only trying to make an epistemological point about participatory knowing, I'm trying to give people a, a concept by which they can understand how to get into right relationship with these kinds of pathways, does that does that land for you? Does that look, resonate? For absolutely. You? Look, look. I don't have a recipe, as I'm sure you're. You're not asking for no, one either, because it's a naive no. way to go about it. Uh, but uh, to me, it, it went hand in hand with a form of self knowledge and self acceptance. Yeah. Which yeah. which was intimately tied to my view of what reality is. These two things yes. were, were not separate yeah. from me. So that's why I keep yeah. on insisting on on the the importance of an onto a plausible ontology. 
uh, that's conducive yeah. to this because for me it it was uh, indispensable because the yeah. way I'm put together yeah. my intellect is the bouncer of my heart if I do not have a plausible intellectual hypothesis to ground whatever I'm pursuing I shut myself off from it yeah and yeah. Um, yeah. and there was a lot of shadow shadow acceptance uh, I, look I never said this because I was never asked but I will volunteer this now it will probably surprise <laughs> the vast majority of the audience a big part of my shadow was vitriolic criticism of woo-woo, paranormal, new age, right. cosmic mind, yeah, yeah. all that stuff. I was so caustic about that. I would jump mm. to criticism so quickly. I would be so critical of all this stuff in my mm. 20s mm. and 30s. Um, it required a sort of involved years-long intellectual process for me to accept this because I needed the intellectual plausibility but it was not the only game there was an emotional opening to that softer side of myself that I'm giving expression to right now if you met yes. me 10 years ago I, I would have very little empathy I would be very black and white uh, my INTP score in a personality test my T score was the maximum possible score. Mm -hmm. I've answered mm -hmm. every question in a way that tilted me to T. The, 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 the evaluator, I was doing that for a company, the evaluator looked at that and thought, you are the first perfect T, perfect thinker. Think, thinking overvalues everything for you. So he said, I was the first to score a perfect score on the T, could not have been a, a higher. Um, and so that was my conscious self. Uh, my, my adaptive self, everything was thinking because, you know, it helped, helped shut away the trauma yeah. of my father's yeah. loss. Yeah. It helped so much. It was such an, a brilliant adaptive move that had its place, but then it no longer had its place. And opening up to those other psychic, uh, well, psychological functions yeah. uh, was a process of uh, uh, shadow acceptance uh, for me, a very difficult uh, process of shadow acceptance because suddenly I was becoming everything I was critical of yeah uh, not yeah, to an yeah. extreme but uh, you know to to even dip my toe in those waters was like oh what am I doing and I still have it I yeah, still have yeah. it secretly yeah, I right. still am invited to and then last week I was invited to to an online conference and I really have had to hold myself back because my shadow side was screaming about the style, the language yeah. that other people yeah. were using. I was like, come on, get a grip. Stop this. No, stop this bullshit. <laughs> you know? um, which, of course, is not the fact of the matter. Those people have their perspective. They have their, their journey. They have their path. Um, but integrating this in a way that doesn't go to extremes either way uh, was 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 difficult. It's uh, it, it's like an onion. It never ends. And there is always a new yeah, yeah. layer of yeah. acceptance to, of yourself, I, acceptance of the world. I call it the ball of string. The ball of string. You're always unwinding it, and it seems like it's uh, never going to change. It's <laughs> endless. When you think you got yeah. there, then oh no, and then comes the next thing. Oh, no, look at this now, <laughs> and you go, oh shit, it's even worse than I thought. There's so much convergence between your story and mine on that point. I mean, I, I specifically took up, uh, I only saw, I only described the light side of it. I didn't describe the shadow side of it. I specifically took up the Tai Chi and the Buddhism and everything because that was me opening myself up to the woo-woo um, and to 
kinds of knowing that weren't, you know, computational thought and argumentation. Exactly. Uh, for, for very similar reasons. And it, 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 and it changed me. It, it changed me from behind. It changed me from, from my blind side. Like I, I didn't put it focally present that that's what, but that's what happened in the process, right? Um, so I think that's, I, how, I, that's I, always how it happens. It, it, it doesn't yeah, happen under your yeah. control. No, no. So I, I, I just wanted to share with you that, that I resonated with what you said about that because it's something very similar for me. Um, and and I, I now have garnered the reputation of the person. Uh, like uh, I, I suppose in this channel, I, I, I seem much more the positivist, but I'm often uh, in other things. I'm the person who talks about all the woo uh, that other people don't want to talk about. So yeah, I wrestle <laughs> with that. I wrestle with something similar, um, and I, I wrestle with how to you know how to separate uh, uh, you know critique, which you know anybody who's advocating position should be open to critique and discussion. From you know that destructive smasher that wants to just smash it down, um, it's like okay, um, you know uh, here's 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 how I respond, but like part of responding is to try and genuinely listen, which is often very challenging uh, for me because you know I I grew up having to listen to the word of God and the word of my parents, and so my re- my reactance to that is I'm going to speak and I'm going to speak monologically and I'm going to overwhelm people with my speaking. And one of the shadow reasons why I'm taking up this whole Dialogos project is to learn, no, 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 you don't want to be a monologue. Uh, the, 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 the Cartesian monologue, mon- monadic mind, is, is, is what got us into this problem. You, you want to, and if you're going to really enter into a dialogical mind, then listening matters as much as speaking. But that's been, that's been very challenging for me because listening is often triggering a sense of vulnerability to authority and to dictation. Uh, and I'm playing on both pl- senses of the word dictation there. Yeah, it's, uh, I, I, I recognize that. Um, and and it, it never ends in, in the sense that uh, to this day, if, if you look at how I articulate my own views, I articulate them purely on the basis of reason and empirical evidence. So you still see that m- my shadow, yeah. although I accept it, it's there. It, 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 and that's what I think is important that people who are in the paradigm of fight, they don't understand. To incorporate the shadow doesn't mean that you killed the shadow or that you... No, uh, no. yeah. yeah. <laughs> it, it, you sort of accept its expression and, and a big expression of my shadow, you see my work. My work is purely on the... Everything I do, I argue on the basis of reason and evidence. 100%. And I am yeah. fully aware that that's not the whole story. I'm fully aware that there is a lot of intuition, that there, is, uh, there are aspects of reality that do not comply to Aristotelian logic. Why should they? Why should the set yeah. of natural axiomatic statements of a monkey uh, uh, be such that they encompass the whole <laughs> of reality, right? Of course not. Uh, so I, I'm keenly aware that introspective insight, intuition, feeling, these count as much to, to build up one's worldview. Uh, or more, maybe they count more than reason and evidence, but I am the way I am. I have my shadow, and my shadow <laughs> needs to go through this purely on the basis of reason and evidence. Um, I, I, I had private exercises about integrating my shadow. Uh, one paper I published in a, in, in a technical journal, the Journal of Consciousness Studies, one of the main philosophy journals uh, in the world yep, today. Yep. Uh, you got a the paper there, you have a, a PhD. Um, 
I made a point. I usually use the words extended mind or universal subjectivity, something academic and neutral. In that paper, I thought I'm going to do an exercise here. I'm going to use the words cosmic consciousness, which were the words right, that used right. to give me shock, like, oh, yeah, I don't. yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. I, I made a point of putting <laughs> it there. Um, yeah, and it was accepted. Uh, the rest is history. But I sort of on purpose made my life more difficult to sort of, you know, embrace the process uh, I was in. So I wrote about cosmic consciousness. I, I had to look in the mirror and say, I published a paper in which I talk <laughs> about cosmic consciousness. What are you going to do now? Are you going to shoot yourself in the head? No, it's done. It has happened. <laughs> so that was part of my own uh, exercise. <laughs> That's such a great story. Thank you for sharing that. I, I've done similar things, but that 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 that's really precious. Thank you. That's really wonderful. Um, I, I, I'm happy that you can now uh, like apprehend it mostly through humorous lens, rather than you know the 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 tension that was at the time. No doubt when you were. When there's two tension. It. There's two tension. Yeah, there's always a new there's, layer. There's, <laughs> yeah, there's the humor, which also helps a lot, I think. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it, it's really conducive to cognitive flexibility and insight. Um, that's another thing that the West needs to, just to throw out a, a random, not totally random thought, uh, and this aligns with the stuff I talk about about serious play. We need to figure out how to reintegrate humor back into spirituality. That's part, again, of that separating the air from the earth. Um, and the fact that, um, and, you know, somebody once pointed out, you know, there's no humor in the Bible. That's a very odd thing. Uh, I asked someone this, did Jesus make any jokes? So not that was recorded. Now, I, I, I doubt that he didn't because I mean, when you actually get closer, you know, approaches to stage figures, they are, I mean, so- Socrates has a lot of humor running through him and there's all this uh, stuff going on and he, he, he does wordplay and all kinds of uh, humor. Uh, he could be more funny, but nevertheless. But I think of somebody like Kierkegaard, and the the humor running through his work is just. Per- it's, oh, yeah. You can't separate. You can't separate the philosophical and the spiritual project from the humor in Kierkegaard. And, and and Kierkegaard said something really interesting about these two figures. He said, "I follow Jesus, but Socrates is my teacher." <laughs> um, and, and so, and I really resonate with that in in some in important ways. But I think. You know, I, I want, I'm commending Bernardo and I'm recommending, and myself included, that we try to reintegrate the spirit of humor into our spirituality uh, because of all of the work about how much humor, right, how much it integrates different kinds of knowing, how much it facilitates cognitive flexibility, how much it opens you up to other person's perspective, affords insight. Um, the fact that we've kept that out of our spirituality is only detrimental is only detrimental. And if you remember in The Name of the Rose, this was actually one of the central topics. Remember the document that was being kept hidden and people were being killed about was Aristotle's treatise on laughter, right? And, and that's what had to be kept out at all costs. And I think Echo was pointing to something really important there, uh, that if, until we can properly reintegrate the spirit of humor uh, uh, with... Um, you know, our spirituality, I think we're still seriously truncated in our ability to get develop a sensibility that is properly, or at least you know, maybe even optimally responsive uh, to the to the meaning crisis. So that's why I was glad to see the humor mixed with 
that the the because you know people can relate those events and they can they they can they can go back into that yeah exactly your eyes did that they can go back into that like that moment of like ah right that yeah yes. but the the, the the fact that it was so spontaneously woven with humor I just wanted to commend that and recommend that to other people uh, and and humor is also something you have to participate in you can't make it and you can't just wait for it to happen right it, like it, there, you have to participate in it you have to slide into it the way uh, Bernardo says. Yeah, at some point you go through this so many times that, uh, you know, your your self-opinions and your your opinions in general get shattered so many times that it becomes very difficult to take yourself without humor. That's what I meant yeah. when I told you last time, uh, Kurt, to don't take yourself too seriously. Take life seriously, but yourself less so. Um, it has to do with that. Uh, now, some, if we take ourselves too seriously, it it becomes too tight. You know, the, the process becomes too hard. Too, and there's no point doing that. John, you mentioned the meaning crisis, and the way I wanted to end this was to talk about a religion without a religion, which is your term, John. But what I mean is that it seems like we've lost. When I say we, I mean modern people. Modern people who value the intellect tend to disparage God and disparage traditional religion. But then there's this hole. And then even Richard Feynman said that one of the most important questions, if not the most important question, is where do we go? What's the modern church? Mm -hmm. We can't just go back to church. You can't just simply believe. You can't just pray to a statue of Mary. I don't even think you should because that's like an idol. So I don't know how Catholics get around that. It's another issue. But either way, what do we do? So, John, do you mind yeah, ex- talking that, about that a bit? And then, Bernardo, I'd like to hear your thoughts. This is more about speculation rather than... There's no disagreement. It's almost like you're just building something together. Well, I, I wanted to say that um, a significant aspect of what I mean, a dimension of what I mean by the religion that's not a religion, is what has been happening here. The kind of dialogue that is not just debate. The kind of dialogue that's, you know that has poesis in it and logos in it and not just logic in it. Um, and so um, that's important. Uh, so when I'm talking about the religion, so the, the reason I use a contradiction is because uh, I'm trying to break out of the way in which we've, we've locked ourselves into an inappropriate sort of exclusivity. Uh, but I want to say one caveat that's really important. I think, it's, I think it's completely empirically justified in terms of the demographic to talk about the nuns, N-O-N-E-S. These are people who officially who say on census and apparently sincerely that they have no uh, they, they do not belong to any religion. OK. Now, that's a it's a growing group and it will soon be the majority. That's the demographic fact. I do not want to simply dismiss because I get into good faith in both senses of the word discussions, even dialogos with people who are Christian, Buddhist, Muslim, Jewish. And I want to acknowledge and recognize that I see the sincere cultivation of wisdom and meaning and this kind of humility and the attempt to get inner peace and to see to get ontological depth perception. And so I, 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 I never w- intended the claim to be everybody's in this. OK, I want it. I want that very clear. I think if people are, you know, be able to cultivate wisdom and virtue and sensibility, uh, you know, transcend all the stuff we've been talking about within their religion, uh, I don't want to in any way throw a stumbling block in front of them. But back to the point, there is the demographic fact that church allegiance is even now starting to decline in the United States of America. 
That's undeniable. And Europe is predominantly non-religious by by demographic and, and things like this. Okay, so there is a group of people, and this has been growing, and that's the people I'm trying to address. I also help, I also hope, and I've told that this is the case, that what the work I do helps people who are within a religious tradition find more meaning and wisdom within it. Um, but I think it's the case that the nuns are a large and growing demographic, uh, especially in the developing world. Okay. Now, the thing we can't, the thing we shouldn't think, still speaking demographically, is they're all Sam Harris atheists. That's not. That's not what's going on. Are some of them that? And I, I say that because I want to challenge the idea that it's primarily just intellect that makes people go into the nuns. It's not intellect in our narrow, truncated, suffocated sense of intellect right now. Some of it is. But most of these people readily and reliably and enthusiastically describe themselves as spiritual but not religious. Which And the thing about that is, the fact that that is so pervasively said and so pervasively valorized and so little thought is given to what the hell does that actually mean, right, in any kind of coherent fashion, indicates what's going on with these people. So They're what does searching. that mean? Well, well that's the point. It, it, it means something like an incohate sense that they want to deal with self-deceptive, self-destructive patterns. They want to come to a more inner alignment. They want to be more in touch with reality. They want to be more connected to other people. They want more meaning in life. They want more wisdom. They, 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 they want to be able to see, and, and they, they don't use this word, but I would make the case that that's what they're talking about. They want to see virtue in themselves and in the world, right? And I think that's why we have the issue, and I'm not taking a stance on this politically, but we have the whole phenomena of virtue signaling that expresses a hunger in our culture. Where, where, wherever you stand on the woke pseudo-religion, there is a hunger that's being expressed there. Like, why, why, do we, why do we need virtue signaling? Because we're hungry for it. We want to see it in ourselves and other people, but we don't want to go through the transformations, the suffering that's required. So these people are, that's what they mean. They want to do this, but they, they don't find, and this is, I think is much more important than disbelief. They don't find for political reasons, for experiential reasons, for idiosyncratic reasons, for reasons of trauma, uh, for, all, uh, for reason, more moral reasons. They don't find the religions relevant. That's the main judgment. It's not falsity. It's, it's, it's irrelevance. I want to use a Jamesian idea here right? The religions aren't viable for them. And simply trying to convince them that the religion is belief is often like, like it's extremely clumsy because that's not the basis of the rejection. And so what they mean is, you know, I find those things irrelevant to satisfying this need, but this need needs to be satisfied. And I'm not clear what this need is. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to do this autodidactic, eclectic search for practices and beliefs and images and groups of people. And, and, and what they basically do, what spirituality means in practice, even though they won't say this, and there was a, a, a very good argument, essay about this, is spirituality means the religion of me. It means my religion. It means the, uh, what, I, what I've done. And remember, not all religions are worship-based. So you have to give up that Abrahamic right, ethnocentricity. What they're doing is they're cultivating an ecology of practice that's trying to help them engage in self-transcendence, enhance connectedness, 
more inner peace, more contact with what's real, including the reality of other people, right? Get some kind of virtue into their life. But they suffer from the fact that that, like, they suffer from any project that is driven primarily in an autodidactic, fragmented fashion. And, and so, like, they are easily prey to both internal and external compulsive uh, manipulation. Uh, because, you know, my, my, my student, my RA, he's not my colleague, Jen Sung Kang, he's done, Jen Sung Kim, he's done research, you know, that, and, and, and let me say the whole thing, because the whole thing is important. If you compare people who are religious, within a religious tradition to people that are outside of a religious tradition, and you compare them by our best sort of measures on wisdom, and we are developing such measures, by the way, the people within the religious traditions do better. That's an empirical thing. However, however, there's no difference between the various traditions. It just matters that you belong to one. Right. So that's why I keep saying, and, and, you know, and this goes with arguments made by Stephen Batchelor, right, when he talks about Buddhism, without belief. We, because we have reduced religio, that sense of connectedness to belief, and even belief originally meant to give your heart to something, but we've reduced it to the assertion of beliefs. We think, well, all of these systems, look at how much they're in conflict at the belief level. But it turns out, I don't want to say that not having beliefs, it would be functional. I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is, it's clear that the functionality for the cultivation of wisdom isn't found in the semantic content of the propositions. And I, and I agree, and I'm going to reinforce it. I agree with Bernardo's point that and the, you can't situate a wisdom ecology in a vacuum. It has to be situated in an affording worldview. And I totally acknowledge that. But what I'm trying to say here is, right, they're trying to do this back to the nuns in, in a, you know, it, you're reinforcing the very Cartesian, monologic, monadic, individualistic frame that, and, and the propositional tyranny, I, right, and, 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 and all the proclivities we all, myself included, share for self-deception. All of that's just getting reinforced by that religion of me. And of course, one of the pervasive kinds of things it leads to is spiritual bypassing and narcissism. Uh, and, and those are, I, I mean, and, and your Trungpa wrote a good book about this. Spiritual materialists in, in, the, in the socioeconomic virtual, uh, uh, virtue sense of materialism, not in the ontological sense. Spiritual materialists are the worst. I mean, they're the worst of all. They're, right? I mean, elite, like, because what, what, the, what all they want to do is show you their trophy shelf of all their wonderful experiences that show how unique they are and how the universe is uniquely caring about them. And, and it's like, wow, that's, that's harder to get through than somebody who's, you know, buying the car to become mature because at least that person, right, is, right, is confronting some frustration and suffering. You can get to them, but, this person over here can have that. The, 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 the Buddha talks about the, the, you know, the contentedness of the cabbage uh, that uh, that would just prevents them uh, from the, you know, the Kierkegaardian realization of that they are always one step away from the precipice of despair. Um, and Let's I thought it was Bernardo jump in at some point soon. Well, I just wanted to commend Bernardo on something that I, I forgot to commend him on, uh, which is um, I have also been in a place where suicide seemed. Um, the alternative for me. Um, uh, I also suffer from veneers in my left ear. So I also have not heard silence in decades. And it also comes with uh, attacks of vertigo. So um, 
I just I just wanted to express camaraderie with you, shared on that. Thank you, Joe. So Bernardo, about religion without a religion, what do you see as the desiderata of it or the criteria or the checks that need to be ticked? Uh, I think our loss of religion goes hand in hand with our loss of the meaning of certain words. Because yeah. you, you see, we don't experience reality directly. We sort of tile the world around us with a mosaic of conceptual signs, right? Words. Uh, we, we live the mm. narrative that we tell ourselves about what we are living. So words, in a sense, are important. And then we've lost the meaning of so many words. We've lost the meaning. And, and this, the, I'm not taking a cheap shot at, uh, at homosexuals by saying this. I, I'm certainly, <laughs> I'm a defender of homosexuals, if you read my site. Um, but we've lost the, the full meaning of the word gay, for instance. The, the meaning, the original meaning of the word gay is spontaneous joy. But now, you know, now sort of linguistically, only homosexuals have spontaneous joy. Is that fair? No, <laughs> we, we lost something. We lost the meaning of the word metaphysics, that which mm. is more primary, is behind and precede, precedes physics. Now it has become synonym for spiritual woo-woo. And we've lost the meaning of the word religion. Mm -hmm. Religion mm -hmm. comes from the Latin religare, to reconnect uh, with uh, the source or with transcendence, with the, the, the ground level of reality from, from which the life force arises. Um, but because of institutionalized religion, it, now religion has become synonym with morals, a moral code, dogmas, and beliefs. Uh, where is the the rejoining? Where is the relinking? Where is the religare? Where is the religion? And the religion sort yeah. of got washed away. I mean, look at the, the Vatican, they can get, and, 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 and I say this with some despair because uh, I care about the, the total collapse of Christianity in the, in the West. And I've been to the Vatican, invited for events at the Vatican, and I was growing hopeful over the last couple of years. And, and, but now look at what they are doing. They use their airtime to talk about arbitrary morals. Uh, and to insist on a, um, how to say, calcified uh, interpretation uh, of scripture. So they, are, they contribute to this loss of the meaning of the word religion. Religion is about the liturgy. It's about the symbolic ritual that points at a truth that cannot be captured in a conceptual framework. Because why would the cognitive apparatus of a primate evolved on planet Earth uh, be broad enough to capture every salient truth about reality in its own closed conceptual system. Why would that be the case? Of course it's not the case. There are relevant salient truths that cannot be said, that cannot be worded, that cannot be expressed mm. through a closed semantic uh, and syntactical system. And I think what religion does is to use an arsenal of symbols of liturgy to sort of point at that, such that you can have a direct experience of it once you're shown the way, once you're given a hint, um, a set of rituals that sort of puts you in the suitable frame of mind that is conducive to making that final leap, uh, leap yourself. But that's not what we see. That's not what we see being done by institutionalized, uh, by, by, the, the, by the religious institutions that are supposed to nurture uh, uh, religion. Um, especially after the, the Reformation, 
you know, you go to a Protestant church, it's, it's fashioned exactly like a tribunal. The preacher mm-hmm. dresses like a judge. Um, mm-hmm. and, and even Catholicism, which still holds on to symbolism, especially Eastern uh, 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 Christ, uh, Christianity, which is not Catholic, but they, they hold on to those symbols. Mm-hmm. But even they, the sermon is almost invariably uh, uh, a moral discourse telling you how to live and telling God what to do. <laughs> uh, we, you know, prayer has become, you know, we tell God what God should do. I mean, where is the religare? We've lost religion. So in an effort to sort of recover that word, uh, I would say, you know, what we miss is religion, not spirituality. We need religion. Um, and uh, and I say this, I mean, I, I don't have the past you've had, uh, John, so I, 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 I don't have that, that trauma or that code. Uh, sure, sure. Uh, yeah. So I, I speak more freely ab- about yeah, yeah. it. That's but, fine. But notice that what I mean by religion is not what religion has de facto become, because the way, of the way it was institutionalized for, for power reasons, but what the word originally meant, what mm-hmm. the Latin word uh, originally meant. And I think we are in a tremendous lack of that uh, in the West. And I think that has a lot to do with the meaning crisis. Because yeah. if you are relinked with that transconceptual source, uh, your relationship with yourself and reality is immediately influenced and transformed by that yeah. link if you Very open that valve uh, again yeah. it's a non-conceptual thing it's not something that you can put in words and explain rationally in a closed system you can't do that uh, but it's life-changing which conceptual yeah. systems are not um, and and because we have such a long history of christianity in the west because that's sort of built into and now I'm, i'll be a Jungian now it's sort of yeah. built into the collective unconscious now I think the shortest path back to transcendence, back to that religare with the meaning, is through Christianity. But it has to be a Christianity of liturgy, not a Christianity of morals and beliefs and judgments. Uh, nobody is going to go to Sunday Mass to be judged, to be told everything you're doing wrong, and to hit the chest and say, mea culpa, mea culpa, mea culpa, three times. Um, as Jung said, l- myths are living things they have to constantly be reinterpreted. They mm-hmm. have to grow. Mm-hmm. And there are many departure points in Christianity for a sort of refreshing uh, of the Christian myth. So many. I mean, Jung pointed out one that was very recent to him. because He died in 61. And this, this point of departure was in 1950. Um, uh, Pius XVI, uh, elevation of the Virgin Mary, Mary yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. to... to, to no, to, 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 to the mother of God. You know, to, she was elevated to the position of sort of the fourth member of the Trinity, so to say. And that brings in the feminine aspect. That's something to, to, there's something to be said about that. There mm-hmm. is a, a new departure point. Uh, what happened to Job? What God is that that is so unreflective that does, does what, he, what he did to Job? When, what does it tell us about the divinity, about mind at large, whatever you want to call it, about the, what is that reflectiveness and what is our role as reflective beings towards God? Um, what, is, what are we supposed to do for the divinity as opposed to keep telling the divinity what to do for us? <laughs> you know what I mean, that's another departure point. How do we help God? 
what is the meaning of our life in helping that which is transcendent to get to somewhere it apparently is desperate to get to. Uh, these are all points of departure to refresh the myth and, and turn it plausible, because a myth, although it's never literal, it has to be vaguely plausible in order to pass through the filter of the intellect. And Christianity, because it has been frozen for 2000 years, deliberately, since Constantine, uh, um, it, it doesn't refresh itself. Um, uh, this is policy in the Vatican. And if, if you talk to the authorities, to the powers that be in the Vatican, it is their policy that the, the, it's the, the reliability of the tradition that makes Christianity unique. That's their point of view. But the consequence of that is that you ossify the myth. You, you, you don't let it evolve and maintain its plausibility, maintain its life, maintain its relevance uh, to everyday life as a symbol pointing somewhere. It has become so implausible, so ossified, uh, that it then turned into judgment, morals, beliefs, and dogmas. And nobody goes to church for that. Nobody in their sane mind <laughs> will go to church. For, for being judged against uh, ossified uh, uh, moral codes arbitrarily defined by a selective read of the scripture. Because you can read scripture in a way that justifies nearly anything. You just choose the book you read and you can basically go anywhere. Read the apocalypse and have a sense about the summum bonum. <laughs> Let's have a look whether it's really pure goodness <laughs> when you read uh, that book. And it was not for nothing that it was the most polemical book to be inserted in the Bible. Um, so, I, I, to be honest, I, I sort of despair a little bit about the end of religion. I think we need religion desperately. What we don't need is a moral code, judgment, and a set of ossified beliefs. We need something dynamic that has life in it, that's not only outside, but sort of courses through us and informs our relationship uh, uh, with ourselves and with that which is transcendent and imminent uh, in the world, that which is beyond Aristotelian logic, beyond language, beyond conceptual schemes. So I, I think that was a beautiful point. Uh, at, um, the, uh, there's religare and religio, they're both contenders for the etymology, but they converge on the idea of binding back or binding together. Um, and so... I, um, uh, I just wanted to make, make it clear that there isn't a, a conflict in that, that I tend to use the term religio as opposed to religare, uh, but uh, they converge anyway, so that's not uh, a, a big issue. Uh, the, um, I was trying to capture that with, uh, I think, uh, with the notion of the religion that's not a religion, because I think religion has, has come to mean, you know, the set of beliefs, the judgment, um, and, and and worship is understand understood as uh, acquiescence in uh, uh, some sort of supernatural authority, etc. Basically, all the things you were saying have ossified. I think that is, and I try to trace out. There's a long there's a long history of how we got to that point where religion has come to mean that. The re, and so, it's what I'm talking about is not religion in that sense, but it's yeah, still I a religion. You. Yeah, yeah, right, right. It's it, it, and, the, and the liturgy for me, right? The liturgy is, you know, what I call uh, I talk about is an ecology of practices, a, a whole bunch of practices that are like an ecology. They ca they counterbalance, they 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 coordinate, they constrain and afford each other to intervene in our psyche in a dynamical and parallel fashion. Because you know, the, one of the great lessons we've learned from 
uh, both pedagogy and from therapy is one-shot interventions into humans don't work because they're so complex, self-adaptive that the system will just readapt. And so you have, and this is the, I think the great insight of Buddhism with the eightfold path. No, no, no. What you have to do, and it's the reason that it's represented by a wheel with shared spokes. There, there's a deep symbolism there. It's, it's a self-rolling. It's a right. It's a self-organizing thing. Um, and, and what you want is you want an ecology of practices that is, is as dynamically self-organizing as the thing that it's being applied to, so that you have a shot, a hope of actually transforming that really complex, recursive, multi-layered, dynamical system that a human being is. Um, so I, 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 what I'm doing is I'm trying to really expand uh, uh, the notion of what, what you meant by the liturgy, uh, a liturgical. There's a set of practices, and, and, and most of the symbols, uh, here's why I use Corbin's notion, are not imaginary, they're imaginal. They're not pictures in our mind. They're ways in which we enact and seriously play with the world. Just so readers, uh, sorry, not readers, listeners get a distinction. When the imaginary is when I say picture a sailboat in your mind. That's different from when a child picks up a, a, a stick and starts walking in a certain way and pretends that they're a Roman centurion. Exactly. Right? They're, not, they're not forming a picture in their mind. What they're doing is ad- they're adopting a certain way of configuring their agency and a certain way of seeing the world so that they can train skills. Why do, why do mammals seriously play? Because that is the primary place in which we undergo development. And so what I think what religions are often doing at the level of ritual when they're creating ecology of practices is they're doing sort of, sort of imaginally augmented reality. You know what augmented reality is when you, like when you project virtual reality onto reality in order to see things like a heads-up display for a, a debt pilot or something like that? I think religions do that. And I, I mean this you know, as, a, as a cognitive scientific proposal. They do imaginal enactment so that they can do imaginal augmentation of reality so that they can, like the child, go through serious, we can go through serious, both individually and collectively, and I think that's important, um, you know, development. And, and again, I think this is part of the Fromian critique. Religion has degenerated into the having of dogma rather than the developing of wise, virtuous people. And they've confused that project, I agree with you, Bernardo, with moral, you know, moral pronouncements. It's like, no, no, no. Telling me over and over again that something is wrong. That's like telling somebody in therapy, you don't want to do that anymore? Stop it. Stop it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right? like, that's not therapy. Yeah. That doesn't help anybody, right? <laughs> Stop like, thinking ah. these thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Stop doing that. <laughs> right? And, and so what I meant by a religion by a religion is, is trying to get all of that, if you'll allow me the metaphor, all of that machinery of, an ecology of practices and imaginally augmented serious play, right? Um, homed in something that is free from all of the dichotomies that struck back to the axial revolution, all the dualisms that I think not only cut us off from each other, um, but cut us off from the world and even from ourselves. And in a way that is, also simultaneously response, responsive to the fact that many of the mythological forms of the dualism have been undermined by, by, the, by the advancement of science, right? We had the Copernican revolution, and then we had Darwin. We are being re-embedded. We are no longer pilgrims from a supernatural realm. That's no longer a viable, and I mean it in 
James's sense. That's not, that's not viable for us. Now, you can pretend all that science doesn't exist. And I, and that's just, to my mind, spiritual bypassing. And I think that that'll translate into spiritual bypassing in the rest of your life. And I grew up with people that did that. And the, 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 the claims of certainty that, that just, just put the lie to, right, that had the lie put to them by the anxiety-riven nature of their lives, it's like, ah, right? We need to somehow come up, and this is why I'm, this is part of why I'm talking to you, right? We need to come up with a worldview, and I want to use this next word very carefully, that properly homes our ecology of practices and our enacted imaginal augmentations of individual, social, and ontological reality in a way that properly homes them, that validates them, that gives them, as you said, that, that we can reliably point to, there, there's a wise exemplar, right? There's a path that seems reasonable. And like you said, it, does, it, it doesn't have to be any kind of equivalent to a scientific, the sci- a scientific theory. But I agree with you. If it doesn't pass the prima facie filter of plausibility, people yeah. are going to be, again, cut into this horrible dualistic dichotomy against themselves. And therefore, they're not going to get the inner peace, the religio with them within and without yeah. that they are seeking. 100% agree. Thank you both. Honestly, thank you so much. I, it's a pleasure for me. I'm honored to have you both on. And the audience, if you could see the live chat, the audience, the audience is overwhelmingly yeah, positive. I don't see a single negative comment. Thank you. And where can the audience find out more about you? John and then Bernardo. John, where can the audience find out more about you? Oh, sorry. I was just trying to take a look at the live feed because I don't <laughs> have it up. I, want, uh, um, I mean, the best place to get to what I think is my apex or most important project is uh, Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. Um, and there'll be links to that. Um, I think uh, if you should, if you took seriously what I just said about the exemplification, the exemplification of the logos, I also have an ongoing series called Voices with Viveki, where I try to do this with people. Um, and then if you want to see the attempt to integrate the logos uh, with cognitive science uh, directed towards a lot of these issues, I have two series out there. One's complete called Untangling the World Knot that I unfold dialogically with Craig Enriquez. And then a current one, which is on the nature of consciousness. Uh, and so it's relevant to this discuss- the, both of these discussions. Um, and then there's one uh, that's uh, being released right now called uh, The Elusive Eye, capital I, with Greg Enriquez and Christopher Pietro. Again, a dialogical uh, presentation of the cognitive science and the psychology and the existential philosophy around this thing we invoke so much and we know so little about which is the self. Well, what is the self? What kind of entity is it? And um, um, uh, how, should, how should we properly know thyself? Because Socrates would say, he doesn't really mean your autobiography. He means know what kind of thing a self is. Um, and, and that's why he often calls it also being a mortal, a mortal, by the way. Um, so that's how people can reach me. If you want to know my academic work, just go on Google Scholar and put in my name and you'll, you'll get the stuff I published. Oh, you might, uh, if you want, if you're interested in the meaning crisis and mythology interacting, I also have a book free online 
uh, called uh, Zombies in Western Culture, a 21st Century Crisis, which is how the zombie mythology, as Lou said, is the mythology of our time, because I, I, we argue that it's the mythology. I did it with Chris Master Pietro and Philip Misovic. It's the mythology by which the culture is expressing, not resolving, but expressing the meaning crisis right now. Bernardo, where can they find out more about you? And what are you working on next? Uh, I'm working uh, for Essentia Foundation now, which is sort of a, a new platform in which I'm basically working to promote other people's work, uh, not my own, but in this direction of a ontology of idealism and some form of objective idealism. Um, that's what I would point people to. Go to essentiafoundation.org. One word, Essentia foundation.org and about me just type my name on google or go to bernardocastrup.com one word as well and bernardo i hope that there's an opportunity for you and i to hang out in person at some point in in the future i would enjoy that greatly i'd really enjoy that uh, as well and talk about our favorite philosophers because you 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 dropped a few names today and i was like oh i was itchy to talk with you about (laughs) kikagawa and a few others (laughs) (laughs) okay Have a great night, both of you. Oh, and for the people watching, if you would like to see more conversations like this, please do consider going to patreon.com slash kurtjaimungle. Every dollar helps. And there are many other theolocutions I'd like to have. So, for example, what's coming up is Yosha Bach. Kastrup mentioned him. Yosha Bach and Donald Hoffman. That's in the end of August. And at some point, John, I would like to get you and... I don't know if I can announce it because it's, we're still working on it, but right. a special person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Everybody yeah, knows like now. <laughs> Hear that sound? That's the sweet sound of success with Shopify. Shopify is the all-encompassing commerce platform that's with you from the first flicker of an idea to the moment you realize you're running a global enterprise. Whether it's handcrafted jewelry or high-tech gadgets, Shopify supports you at every point of sale, both online and in person. They streamline the process with the internet's best converting checkout, making it 36% more effective than other leading platforms. There's also something called Shopify Magic, your AI-powered assistant that's like an all-star team member working tirelessly behind the scenes. What I find fascinating about Shopify is how it scales with your ambition. No matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Join the ranks of businesses in 175 countries that have made Shopify the backbone of their commerce. Shopify, by the way, powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, including huge names like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. If you ever need help, their award-winning support is like having a mentor that's just a click away. Now, are you ready to start your own success story? Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theories, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theories now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in, shopify.com slash theories. <laughs> yeah. Okay. What did it say? Three hours and 40? Four hours, two minutes, 49 seconds for me. <laughs> I don't know. I've got six, nine, six, three, six, three, Oh, that's five. fine. Don't worry about that. Don't worry about that. Okay. 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 Thank you. Thank you. Bernardo. Thanks for, for doing this, uh, Kurt. Appreciate yeah, it. Thank you very much, Kurt. Thank you for thank staying you. up, Bernardo. I know it's probably 10 p.m. 10 there. o'clock. I have yeah. to have dinner.
<laughs> yeah, go go eat, go eat. I'm going to email you, Bernardo, and ask you some advice as to how I should speak to Rupert Spira because apparently it's a different mode to speak to him. You mentioned that he's not interested in analytical conversation. So I'm going to email you and ask path, you about that no. as well. But, uh, but uh, contrary to a lot of the other spiritual teachers, uh, he can engage with it. Uh, uh, but it's not his... He would try to have you have the insights directly as opposed to telling you what the insight is. Great. Well, that's, I'm looking forward to it. Thank you. Thanks Thank a you lot. Both. John, you many thanks. Appreciate yeah, it again. You too, you too Bernardo. <laughs> wonderful. And I met what I said. I hope at some point we can hang out together in person. That'd be wonderful. It shall happen. It shall happen. I see it happening. <laughs> Good. Bye-bye. Glad to hear All it. right, guys. Take care. Bye. Okay. Bye-bye. Just a second. It's not over. There's a bonus section of audience questions. Could you ask about the paradox inherent in the trying not to do? In some states of being, you might be tone deaf. I feel sometimes force is needed. So I think he, uh, I think the person is referring to uh, Schlingerlin's phrase, trying not to try, which is not the same thing as trying not to do. Uh, there's a very important distinction there. Uh, the idea is uh, very, like, let me give you the example of, you can't just, I'm going to go into the flow state right now. There we go. No, 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 right? But that doesn't mean you can just sit here and wait for the flow state to happen. Yeah. What do you have to do? You have to cultivate the finesse of learning how to get into the right relationship. And that means also attitudinal and sensibility so that there's a real possibility that flow will take shape. This is why I try to use the notion of participation. And repeatedly, it's, you know, it, it, and I understand it, it like when, when, like when you're sparring with people, in tight, like you're trying not to force it, right? You're trying to actually flow with the person. One of the best things to, to uh, if you're sparring with a person, is, is, to, is to compliment them. <laughs> that was a really good block. Because what they then do is they monitor their blocking, and then they lose flow, um, right? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I, I get what you're saying, that uh, the point about, you know, sometimes you need uh, force. Uh, there's this notion in Tai Chi Chuan of Pung, which is I, I, I want to hold my arm as if water was flowing through it. It's not rigid like this, and it's not limp like that. It's like water's flowing through it, because what that does is it coordinates all the small muscles and the large muscles and brain-body coordination so that I can flow any inertial force through it very, very effectively. And by the way, you, can, you enhance that through imaginal augmentation. Actually practice imagining having water flow through your hand. And then having somebody press on your arm and know what the difference between resisting it with force and resisting it with flow. Because there's a real felt difference and there's a difference in the functionality. So I understand, I think, I, I hope, I'm trying to be open, I like, I'm trying to be responsible to, like, sometimes you have to just keep going. And I get that. But what I want to say is, one of the things, you, you have to give up the notion even of keep going as a willpower. One of the most Disconfirmed notions in empirical psychology is the notion of willpower. It was actually seriously proposed by Baumeister. There initially saw, well, you know, there's sort of mental energy that we, like the ego depletion that we have at reserve to just push ourselves through things. Um, and then it turned out that there's been just massive failures to replicate that. Um, it doesn't look like that's the case. What seems to be the case is what you want to do is develop a capacity to get more flexibility in your framing of situations. So options open up to you. So that's the effort. The effort is in making yourself more flexible 
and responsive, more liable to catch the flow. And the more frequently you do that, the more frequently you will do it. And that's the way you sort of persist. I, I, I'm sorry, I'm trying, to, I'm, I'm trying to speak almost as I would within the tai, you know, a, a tai Chi Chuan instruction. Um, but like, it's very predictive of people that who are, will, like, who are trying to deal with rehabilitation. I will just do, they, they, it's predictive that those people will fail, that they will fall into recidivism, right? Let me give you an example. Uh, I'm going to lose weight. My willpower, you'll fail. And, and, and in fact, I've lost 20 pounds on this diet. Within five years, you'll be back to where you were. 95%. I'm really confident in that prediction. What is one of the things that tends to put people in the 5%? Joining a, a group of people who are also trying to lose weight. That is a much more powerful predictor than you, right? And I'm not, I'm not trying to insult anybody. I, I was insulting myself there because <laughs> I remember doing that kind of thing, uh, right? And so... Yeah, you have to persist sometimes, but try to think of the persistence as flexibility and finesse and putting yourself into right relationship with others as a way of keeping you going rather than like you being like Sisyphus pushing the rock up the hill. That's how I would try to answer that question. Okay, Bernardo, I'll repeat the question. And by the way, it wasn't queer, though. It was Mr. Chocolate Cookie. I, I can't add just... to what John has just said. All right. Okay, so Queerdo, now this is actually Queerdo's question. Is the move toward veganism in our society an example of shedding of spiritual bypass of thinking humans are special and supreme? So, Bernardo. Look, I think if we are to have a viable civilization, uh, consuming a lot less meat and a lot more vegetables mm. is a uh, um, indispensable element yep. of the way out and there are totally a million agree. reasons for this uh, uh, um, uh, uh, agriculture of animals uh, is extremely inefficient you need a whole lot of water a whole lot of space uh, so it's a very inefficient way to produce proteins and calories uh, it's a planet wrecking uh, way of doing that not to mention the incredible amount of suffering that is inflicted on higher mm. animals with complete nervous systems because we treat them as products uh, so I think the consumption of meat we engage in today is preposterous. It's outrageous morally. Uh, it's, it's an affront uh, uh, to our responsibility towards future generations. And it is literally carcinogenic towards us. It's also unhealthy. It's an indulgement of a, a addiction that we do not want to give up. So I think uh, something in the direction of veganism is indispensable. Um, but can you remind me of the context of the question again? Because that's not what sure. he actually asked. Sure, Yeah, sure. And just as an aside, there's a great video by this YouTuber called What I've Learned that demonstrates that much of the environmental claims against meat eating has been debunked. And I'll send you that after because it's surprising. So is the move toward veganism in our society an example of shedding of spiritual bypass of thinking humans are special and supreme? No, I don't think so. I don't even see, I don't even quite see the motivation for the question. Um, I don't think reducing the amount of meat we consume is a sign of any spiritual transformation. I think... Uh, it's a sign of reason 
good old play reason. If you want to do something good to yourself, to others, to animals on the planet, you will consume less meat. It's as clear-cut, banal, and unavoidable <laughs> as that, I think. John, do you have any thoughts to add to that? Well, I'd like to see the, uh, the debunking video. Uh, I, I expect I will have a lot of critical responses to it because I think the biomechanics of how much how many people you can feed with wheat how many, versus how many people you can feed uh, with uh, the cows uh, that you fed the wheat to is just like the cow has to use most of that energy to be a cow. Exactly. Um, so I, 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 I'm, not, I'm not clear how you can get out. That seems to me just to be a rock bottom, uh, a, a, you know, a bioeconomic fact that you're not going to be able to debunk. I, so I, 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 I just... Okay. I can briefly state one of them is that most of the land that cows are on are the land that food cannot be grown on anyway. And much of the time when they talk about the water that's used for a pound of meat, that's rainwater, which would have come onto that land anyway. And so there's many other, there's many ways that the statistics that we know about that are alarming with regard to meat production, speaking purely of ruminant animals, that has been debunked or at least highly contested. And I, I didn't know about this until just a month ago. It, now that doesn't at all cover the suffering of the animals, which to me is the main point. I don't like how they're treated. I can speak from a personal experience. Uh, we have a vegetable garden here at home. Uh, and the main patch is about 35 square meters. We have different patches, but the main patch is 35 square meters. And every year we produce a lot more vegetables than we can eat. I and my girlfriend. And we distribute to our neighbors. We are well known for this. Uh, around July, the food distribution begins uh, here. Now, in that same space, I perhaps could keep three chickens and eat their eggs. It's, there's no comparison. When it comes to pound for pound, uh, what I can use that space for to produce vegetables is just uncomparable to the equivalent uh, using a, a, lower, a lower animal. I certainly could not have a cow in that space. The difference would be that you wouldn't be growing a cow or a sheep or a chicken in that place where you could grow vegetables, but instead to do both. But I'll send you the video. Well, but, you know, look at Brazil. Where are they growing cows? Where there was virgin rainforest before. So the, the, to claim that that space cannot be used for anything else is a self-affirming yeah, question. Because the, once you've destroyed the, idea, the forest... Yeah. It's the idea that it's, uh, it's sort of unproductive uh, because it's just laying there and we're not growing wheat on it. We couldn't grow wheat on it. That's to see... That's to fail to see the whole intricate way in which the ecology works that supports the areas of land upon which we grow the wheat. That yeah. that's a very I, like that's just a, a very atomistic uh, 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 appraisal. Anyways, we're we're arguing in absentia. We need to see the video, and, yeah. and, and, and you know Bernardo and I are both <laughs> we have our knives out and perhaps yeah. we, should, we, we, we should we should stop well, and, and, and let let let. let I do want to respond to the other part of the question, sure. If, if I could be allowed, please. Um, I agree. I agree with uh, Bernardo. I think. Uh, I think you can make a completely justifiable um, justification of uh, veganism, um, uh, and, and, and in some way along that. I mean, it depends. I try to find the intersection point, and, and I'm not saying that I'm right. I'm saying this is what has worked for me between the moral arguments and these kinds of ecological arguments. So I don't eat mammals, I don't eat octopus, 
uh, because they, they have the complex nervous systems. They probably have the metacognition and the fluid intelligence that is similar enough to mine that they, in some, I don't mean metacognitively, but they value their existence in a way that's comparable to mine. Um, and, 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 and the mammals tend to be the, the most egregious for the socioeconomic and ecological. Um, you know, and there's also the methane issues around the cows and stuff like that. Um, so I, I, I think you can make that you can make that move totally that way. And I agree with Bernardo. I think a lot of people do make the move that way. Um, I do think it's possible that there are people who also um, take up veganism as a transformative practice in which they are trying to get out of an anthropocentric way of being. I have I have interacted with those people. Um, I, I agree. I don't. I agree with Bernardo. I do not think that that is a requirement in order to be a vegan. But do I think it's possible that people take it up as you know something? And I, I don't mean an insult either way. Something analogous to kosher. Human beings have traditionally managed their diet as a way of bringing around fundamental transformations. And, and, and one of the transformations that I think does need to be uh, you know, realized today is getting out of a, a kind of, a, you know, unquestioned anthropo- anthropocentric worldview. Um, and veganism, ha- I know individuals in which they live veganism. I think that's the right verb. They live veganism as a way of trying to do something in that sense, religious, afford a transformation of kind of, a, uh, you know, a, of, a, of a fundamental transformation of their, cog- of their cognitive cultural grammar. They want to get out of an anthropocentric way of being. And I think if people are doing it, that, I think that's also, also justifiable. Um, I think that's a justifiable reason for taking up veganism. And I would think of that as a, I think you could make a good case, I'm trying to, that that's a religious act as opposed to an act of socioeconomic or moral prudence. I don't know if, if Bernardo wants to say anything about that, but that, that's... I, I, I can I can see where you're coming from. I'm not sure I agree, but uh, yeah. I can clearly see. It, 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 just to, to give you some background for why I said I'm not sure I agree. Um, I, I think the productization of life is a very serious problem. Yeah. Um, yeah. But um, yeah. if you look at ancient cultures, they would kill a bison and eat the bison. That could also be a form of religious expression if you respect yeah, the yeah. animal you killed yeah. as yeah. a sacrifice to give you sustenance so i think historically you know abraham was asked to kill his son uh, the, the the idea of sacrifice uh it has been embedded uh, uh historically for, as far as we can go so uh, i i wouldn't it, my, my my tendency is not to make anything fundamental about meat at a religious level uh, right. What I think is fundamentally wrong is the productization of life. That, I think, is an affront. It's a, it's a disaster um, that we should never have allowed to start. And, but now we've allowed it to not only to start, but to develop and to become addicted to it. Hmm. Yeah, I, I, I see that. Uh, I think, uh, you know, the, the product, uh, I think you call it the productification of life, the commoditization of everything, um, I, I think that's part of the, the Fromian modal confusion. Um, I don't I think, know if we're I think there is something I, to, to speak about killing what you're going to eat. I think uh, it has become And also the easy. reverse, eat, eating what you kill. 
and, right? and eating what you kill. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It has become yeah. too easy to go to the supermarket and buy a slice of beef and think of it as a steak, not as the muscle, bloody mm. muscle of a living, breathing yeah, yeah. creature that had a, a, a high level a, a nervous system. Um, I think there is something to be said to the idea that if you want to eat meat, one, you have to pay the integral cost. And the integral cost is many, many, many times higher than what we are paying today. Yeah. Uh, and two, if you really want it, then kill what you're going to eat. Uh, because the killing is something that tie you up to that life you've taken forever, <laughs> for all eternity. And there is a form of respect, a form of uh, anti-banalization when you are forced to kill what you're going to eat. And in the mm. old times, in the old times, like 100 years ago, you know, Europe of the 1920s, grandma would go, you know, to the chicken pan, take a chicken and kill the chicken. And uh, that process would, would be witnessed by the kids or kill a pig. Mm. Have you ever seen a pig being killed? Yeah. It's a very, yeah. very noisy, very bloody, very long, drawn out affair. Uh, I think if you were forced to have to pay that price for your sustenance, I think it's it's valid uh, in principle to take a life, a hunter taking a life to sustain his family because it forces you a level of respect. It forces you an awareness of the cost for that life of being robbed of it for for sustaining yours that I think makes the whole thing harmonious again. Nature is not all a sea of roses uh, nature no, entails no, no. enormous sacrifices. The problem is that we get the benefit and we hide the sacrifice away from ourselves. And that is what I think is dysfunctional. And we cannot feed seven and a half billion people with meat in a way that would do justice to what I'm saying. You cannot have seven and a half billion people go hunt a, a wild boar. There aren't enough wild places and wild boars around. So I think because we have become so many, the only way, the only decent way out of it is something very close to veganism. Perhaps we can allow ourselves the luxury of meat now and then if we pay the actual price of it um, instead of this fictitious price uh, we pay today, which is not the integral price of meat. That was very good. Was very Last good. question is from David. What did you guys enjoy most about this conversation? Who conversing being in the presence of john and, <laughs> yeah. and being yeah. in this dance <laughs> yeah the, 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 i mean uh yeah the, the 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 appreciating the real capacity to appreciate both in the sense of you know understand value and uh, the increase in, in value we use appreciate to mean all of those uh to, to appreciate the dance of theologos uh, as uh, uh, as an inherently value valuable aesthetic, um, independent from the victory of a debate. Um, uh, I really enjoy that. I genuinely enjoy that with Bernardo. Um, I share the feeling completely. Yeah. yeah. And, and for me, it's like, it's like sparring in martial arts. Uh, I mean, the, the asshole is the person who in sparring tries to like knock you out all the time. Because it's like, no, 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 you don't, that's not what we're doing here. We're trying to help each other get better at something, right? Um, and, uh, and you get into the flow state when that happens. And that's wonderful for both people. And, and, and you grow 
and the other person grows and you grow through each other. And all of that has so much value. And, uh, and uh, I think the value of that has been lost by the adversarial zero-sum gain um, model of debate and discourse that now is pervasive um, in our culture. And so while I appreciated, and I did, a, a lot of the content, I th- the, the opportunity to exemplify the joy uh, um, uh, of participating in the flow of the dance of Dialogos, um, that's, that's really important to me. Exemplifying it more and more to people. They're, they're right now, to my mind, I, I'm not saying this will go for all of eternity, uh, uh, but right now, to my we can't get enough of that right now. We can't get enough of the, you know, aesthetically pleasing, this is Plato in me making it beautiful, the aesthetically pleasing presentation of, of the dance of Dialogos. We can't get enough of that right now. We need more and more of it all the time. So I, I thank you, Kurt, for, uh, for affording this and making it possible. And lastly, before we recorded the podcast, I was feeling extremely nervous, and so I asked John, who is an expert meditator, for some advice. After this, I'm including an extra bit which happened directly before we went live, particularly because people have already commented that this isn't a live stream, this is a love stream, and I thought you might get a kick out of seeing the interactions between John and Bernardo. John, you may need to help me out right now for one minute with some breathing exercises (laughs) to calm me down. Can you take me through, I'm honest, for 30 seconds? Okay, so close your eyes, and what I want you to do is move forward a little bit so you feel off-center forward, and then a little bit back so you feel off-center backwards. Now keep going back and forth slowly, a little less each time, slowly zeroing in where you feel centered front to back. Once you feel centered back and forth, now do the same thing side to side. Move to your left, then to your right. Again, a little less each time until you zero in where you feel centered side to side. Okay, now repeat the same thing with your head. Back and forth, side to side. Now when you feel centered, just feel as everything's dropping down into your lower belly. Okay? Thank you, my friend. You're welcome, my friend. Critique was that, well, there were two critiques. One was from people who are unfamiliar with you, John. They're more Bernardo fans. They're like, look at John getting all worked up. That's fine. And the other, I personally like that. I think that's what made it engaging. Me and the number two is, yeah, exactly. It's, I, I it's hope. Fun. I hope. I hope that. I mean, I aspire that even if I get passionate or worked up, I'm never in any way insulting or disrespectful. Not at all. Yeah, Nowhere but, near. Oh okay, no, you good. can get a lot harder than that. <laughs> okay. I, I, I come okay. from the corporate world. Twenty years. I mean, my skin is thicker than a crocodile. <laughs> it's no problem. It's, yeah, it's important. Uh, that I get we that, but that. I, I also feel affection for you, Bernardo. So, uh, you so, know, do, I, so I, do I, John. Yeah. So I want to. F- I want make sure. I want to make sure that's conveyed as well. Yeah, but you don't need okay, to this. to pay special attention to it or you know, walk yeah. on eggshells. No, just just be yourself. It's fine. Yeah. Okay. <laughs>